well, we may still be raging at a bunch of idiots from Glasgow, but we're your top purpose, aren't we, Dom? Yep, we absolutely are. That, that genuinely made me embarrassed to be from an old Glasgow family. It is probably one of the most embarrassing things I've seen that represents this country ever. I, I can't think of anything where I can just say this is the least justifiable use of 20,000 people showing up at a single point in time ever. I mean, there are, there are less stupid wars that have been fought compared to this fucking debacle of 20,000 Rangers fans all showing up in the middle of Glasgow yeah. City Centre to drunkenly celebrate winning the kickball tournament. Yeah. Fuck me. And it's uh, <laughs> the the trending tag on Twitter was uh, Scotland's shame. And I can imagine if you were in that crowd, you probably don't feel much shame or probably understand what the word shame means. Uh, it was for the people watching at home or watching it watching on Twitter as this just this shit just unfolded. You're sitting there going, motherfucker, just stop it. You realise that you're setting back Glasgow. Everywhere else is in quickly dropping down the tiers, and we're getting to go back out, and we're getting to you know meet other people. But Glasgow has been kept. <laughs> Glasgow's still in tier three, and they don't understand why. Yeah, they're just like, what, what do we do? Just because we, we wanted to celebrate Rangers winning. Because you're fucking idiots. You smashed up Georgie Square. <laughs> what People go to Glasgow, young, old, you go to Glasgow, you pass through Georgie Square. It's just, you can't get away from it. It is, the, it is attached directly to the biggest train station in Glasgow. Yeah. It is 90% and, of people have passed through George Square at some point. Yeah, and it has one of the biggest memorials in Glasgow. People it's also just fucking beautiful, like, hands down. That's yeah. where I started the half marathon for Glasgow. And it yeah. is just a nice place to be. It's a great whenever, communal area. Whenever I go to Glasgow and it's quite sunny, and obviously in days of yore before the world ended, <laughs> we would, if it was sunny, we would get our lunch and we'd sit in George Square because that's, that's what everybody did. It's just such a beautiful place to go to. Uh, I met the my rugby team, the Glasgow Warriors there, when I... Uh, they won the the Guinness, Pro, or I think it was the Heineken Pro 14 at the time. Uh, when they, or Heineken Pro 12, sorry, we dropped, we lost, we didn't have the additional two teams to make it the Pro 14. Uh, they won the the title that year, so they were doing a kind of walk through in a in a well measured fashion. Rugby fans very respectable, and uh, when the Rangers fans met in George Square, they were beating the shit out of each other. Do you want to know what happened to me, Colin, when I met? My fellow Glasgow Warriors supporters, when the Glasgow Warriors won the title. You got like a crushed shoulder from all the hugs. Pretty much, yeah. I got a sore hand from shaking hands and a guy came up to me and said, I like that shirt, man. How does it fit you? Because I hear the Mac the new Macron shirts are a bit tight on the larger gent. And I had a pleasant conversation with a Canadian Glasgow fan, <laughs> uh, Glasgow Warriors fan. You never get that in a Rangers. Yeah. A yeah. Rangers meetup. It was and it, all out street fight. That, or it started as a party, got incredibly drunk and turned into an all-out street fight that the yeah. world got to see on Twitter because of people taking video from, like, the fourth-story buildings. Yeah, men and women pissing and shitting in the street, guys fighting everybody, uh, people trying to get into taxis, then the supporters jumping into the taxi, shouting at the taxi drivers, go home, you slurs, flying left, right and centre. I genuinely think what you said, because we obviously we text back and forth about this shit, and we just kind of, like most people, hung our heads in shame at this site, just going, we can't believe this kind of shit still happens. But you suggested that 
Glasgow Rangers, the football club, should have to pay for the cleanup and the undoubtable, unavoidable outbreak that's going to happen because of these fucking idiots. Yeah, I, I personally put forward that I think Glasgow Rangers as a club, on as a reaction to their fans' uh, behaviour, should be forced to pay for the cleanup, the extra overtime acquired by the Scottish police, and then the NHS bill for Glasgow for the weekend. Because yep. that is all on you. And I, I've heard some stuff about there being the club contacting like Greater Scotland Police and saying, this has happened before, it happened with uh, Glasgow Rangers before, earlier in the year, they won something else, so they, they passed a certain point in the league. Um, I think it was when they knew they were going to win the league. It kicked off then, and they said it's going to happen again. Celtic had the same issue, I think they won another tournament. Uh, earlier on in the year, they beat Rangers to that, so they had a wee march and a parade and a wee sing song and whatever. And I get the—I f- really want these clubs to be hammered, basically, because it's their, yeah. t- it's these two like clans of Glasgow have ruined Scottish football for a long time. It oh, was—I yeah. mean, there was a period before, and this is weird because it's a period that you and I don't remember. It's from the before time, not the now now yeah. time, where the previous two top teams were Dundee United and Aberdeen. And you never heard of shit like this kicking off back then. Yeah. Yeah, it's a weird state of affairs because Glasgow and uh, Celtic, uh, Rangers and Celtic, the, the two and only big names in football in Glasgow and arguably in Scotland that right now, they're two monoliths of Scottish football. They just got bigger and bigger and essentially brought in huge names to football and just, you know... The like old grudges run deep. No one could. I, I, I bet if you pulled over a Rangers fan or a Celtic fan, if they could form a sentence, <laughs> um, they wouldn't be able to tell you how this feud started. They just know there's a feud, um, and it's tied into every aspect of Scottish like social yeah. life. It is the t-shirt you wear, like when you go to bed at night. It is yeah. the. Like, I've seen people with, like Rangers and Celtic like face masks during COVID. It yeah. is the family that you're raised in. It is the family across the road that you don't like anymore. It's tied into the religious aspects of uh, Catholicism versus Protestantism in uh, yeah. Scotland, which has been a like massive issue, especially uh, in the last like forty years. And it has all centered around these two football teams that just decide, fuck it, the rules don't apply. Party time, and the, the fans just say, yeah, yeah, let's go yeah. along, let's just have a riot and uh, get everyone to clean up. Because the day afterwards, there's a protest against the Israeli-Pakistan, like, the Israeli offensive into Pakistan. Or, not Pakistan, yeah. Palestine. Palestine, yeah. It's just... I, I mean, it, just to kind of put a, a full stop on what you said there about how it's just, it's how you're raised. I've heard of people, you know, who've gotten divorced. I mean, for, first and foremost, right, uh, these people have hidden their support from the other teams from each other for a while. They've gotten divorced, say, six months into their marriage because, you know, it comes around to football season again. They go, oh, I'm going to go, see, I'm going to go and see a Rangers game. Like, what do you mean you're going to go and see a Rangers game? You're going to go and see a Celtic game. Then, you know, people have gotten divorced. It, it gets to that just stupid like a shitty marriage. fever pitches. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, they probably got drunk. Uh, but it was always something that I tended to avoid because I, I go through to Glasgow often, as is my want, because my parents were uh, born and raised there. They've instilled, you know, Glasgow is a is a good place. I always love going there. But it's a, if someone ever asks you what football team you support or what your favourite colour is 
always just say something vaguely. I always say, oh, obviously, I don't like football. I'm a rugby fan. I just got, oh, mate, I prefer Glasgow Warriors. Because just saying, oh, you like a Glasgow team, that's enough to get you away with it. Or if you say, oh, uh, you know, what's your favourite colour? Uh, white. <laughs> oh, there's, there's white in her jersey, so we'll let you away with that. <laughs> Actually, there's white in both jerseys. That's a good one. I like it. <laughs> exactly. Just, oh, white. Because it's the essence of all colours. No, that's too high, bro. That's too high, bro. You can't say that to a Rangers fan. No. Probably just look back at you and smash your head with an empty bottle. For an old farm, you say, you say white, it's shiny. Yeah. <laughs> oh, white, shiny, white, good. White, white, shiny. White, shiny, white, good. There we go. There's the episode title. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. No, think about it. Think about it for half a second. You're like, mm, not feeling no. it. As, as much as we, we have said in the past that we're allies of the Black Lives Matter movement and our major major uh, advocates for uh, anti-Asian hate uh, I don't think we can call our podcast <laughs> white white shiny or whatever the hell you want to call it white shiny we could get away with white shiny maybe not white shiny white good I think we <laughs> yeah we, we're for we're, we're trying to you know put out that white people shouldn't do this thing we shouldn't then go you know white shiny white power <laughs> white shiny white, white good white shiny white power full ooh nope still bad oh, nope still bad nope no, can't do that <laughs> Uh, speaking of things we can't do anymore, we can't avoid yep. the topic of the passing of one of the greatest mangaka ever. Um, yep. We've been fans of his work on some level, I mean, for years. Um, there was once upon a time this mythical thing called Berserk, um, which was about a guy with a big sword hitting people. And I was like, that yep. sounds cool. I'll check that out someday. And I went back to watching Dragon Ball Z. And yep. then eventually got around to this... Uh, old anime from back in the day that I was told was going to be the best thing ever as long as I skipped episode 1 and then left that for the end but if I watched episodes 2 through 25 I would experience one of the greatest stories ever told and then find out that that was only part of it and that was my opening experience of Berserk which was written by Kintaro Mura who died on the 6th of May 2021 following an aortic dissection which is a tearing of the aorta in the heart and uh for two weeks, his family had been in private mourning before it was announced worldwide that he'd passed. And yeah, it has been an uncomfortable week since we found out that news. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I think uh, it hit me harder than I was expecting it to because Berserk is up there, man, uh, in terms of my favourite. I mean, Dragon Ball Z will always hold that top spot because it was the first anime that I ever watched. But, you know... Berserk is a very close second, even topping off stuff like Cowboy Bebop and Gundam Wing, which I fucking love all those shows. But there's just something special about Berserk because obviously the, the big, you know, front of shop attraction is, you know, guts and his, you know, titanic strength and his ability to take down demons and other different grotesque forms and the the art and the the action is the I'd say is the main draw. To it, but then when you just you start getting into it a bit more, there's you know themes of uh, loss, themes of depression, themes of uh, and it's, with Griffiths especially. There's this theme of I am better than you, or I am better than this planet. My aspirations are better than you. I shall ascend, and then you start getting sucked into the story all that more. And I found out about Berserk in my very early twenties, and at that point. I was kind of finding myself, kind of just, you know, a bit lost, didn't really know what I wanted to do, then 
because I want I was always just kind of now want to do this for me, you know. When am I going to get to you know? When am I going to get the time to shine? But then I just after watching Berserk, I kind of put it in perspective. Like, nah, you know what? There's time for you, but just you know, get some money in your pocket and you know, stop worrying about you so much and you know, be able to be there for other people. And that kind of kicked kicked it in a perspective as to what I should do. And it was it was very it was very form very thought provoking. And I remember after the first episode because I didn't do it. I didn't do what you did. I didn't do the two then last or two onward I just watched it all the way through and I wanna and I kinda took it as the first episode was just current timeline, then he's flashing back to it. Yeah. Uh, this is him remembering the Halcyon days, the good days before the ultimate shitstorm that is the final The episode. Golden Age you might say. The Golden Age, yep, very, very apt, because that's what the movies are called. And the movies uh, they just took the original series and just fucking put it on an insane degree that was this is what i think dragon ball z kai should have been just you know movies for each saga just condense that shit because if you cut out a lot of the filler in dragon ball z it would roughly be a bit of movies length and uh yeah what was your sort of initial thoughts when you first seen berserk what did you what did you think of it my first impression was actually not that great it was really? just based on the art style i was used to much more fluid animation style and i didn't appreciate it as much as I would grow to appreciate it towards the end mm. of the show. Like we're talking about like episodes like the first three, four episodes I watched, I'm like, okay, like there's a good story here. There's something here. The characters are interesting. I like the way they're telling stories. The action scenes are just very nineties. And as someone who doesn't particularly love that eighties, nineties aesthetic to anime, because you you'll see mm. a marked difference. If you go and look at stuff from the eighties and nineties, there are things that are done to make animation more efficient. And then once uh, computers or once better animation techniques get developed over time, things become a lot better in terms of the actual animation quality itself. So that was a bit of a, a gap there that I had to cross to actually enjoy the show. Mm. And once I'm, when I get deep in the woods for the show, around episode 12 to 18, I'm all in on the story. I want to see how all these pieces come together, how I know they're going to break apart one day, because Berserk is so ubiquitous. It has been spoiled for you already at some point. We're going to try yeah. and avoid the spoilers and stuff here just because this is more about our relation to Berserk and remembering Mira. Um, I don't think we can really spoil the show for you more than it probably has been just by accident. It's a yeah. pop culture juggernaut. Someone's probably accidentally told you about the ending before you've even found out about it. Yeah. But once I got into the show, it starts to really be about got surviving and moving on for me it's mm -hmm. not that he leaves everyone behind it's that he finds out who he is and he moves forward with his plans and overcomes what happens in his past to be the man he wants to be someday and knowing that he might never get there but he's still going to put one foot in front of the other and it's uh it's interesting and one thing that we we've talked about this before is that as bigger guys we rarely see the big guy get an interesting story I mean, we joked mm. about it with uh, the Mountain and the Viper fight during Game of Thrones. The the idea that the big guy gets to win, it's it's a perfect victory. It, it kills him almost, or it does kill him, but he wins. He wins a fight, and big guys don't get to win fights. Berserk is yeah. the show where the big guy gets to win a lot, but still loses a lot as well. Yeah, it's uh, it also kind of shows you that uh, the big guy isn't just this, you know, me hit things. There can be pathos to your you know six foot sword swinging muscle man 
there can be different aspects to the character other than just me smash. Me no like demons. Me can kill demons. Although, for the record, he does smash the shit out of stuff. Oh, yeah. He, there's a, in the Golden Age movie one, he destroy he cuts the shit out of another man mountain. He, the, was it Bazoza or something like that? The, the giant kind of, the knight with the axe? Yeah, the first he kind fucks. of knight captain he meets at the age of, like, 18. Yeah, not a, he's not an old man. He's not a, he's still a very young man at this point, and he fucks that guy up, like, cuts him in half. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, guts cutting people in half in the show, and it's just to show he is miles above the common soldier. He is a force run to himself and will stop a cavalry charge by himself if needs be, mostly by hi- hitting half the people involved with a giant sword. But it's more to do with, when you look at the actual story, it's more to do with why he would step onto a battlefield in the first place, knowing yeah. that he is inches away from death at any moment. Yeah. And I, I always took, I mean, you might have a different uh, interpretation on that, but I always took that as he doesn't need to fight for other people, but he realises that there's some shit out there that the regular person can't fight. Especially in later episodes, when shit starts to really unfold, he thinks that these people will, will die. I don't care, but at the same time, I hate the thing that they're fighting, so I'm going to take that hit for them. Because yeah. I can get back up from it, they won't be able to. Well, for a lot of the, the initial Golden Age arc, it is mostly to do with Guts as a member of the Band of the Hawk, who are a mercenary group that adopt him uh, under their leader, Griffith, who is a incredibly charismatic man with dreams of knightly, noble ambition. Uh, he wants to be a lord someday, despite being born in relative obscurity, which is something that just doesn't happen. So he's going to get there by hook, by crook, and by bloodshed in massive amounts. And I look at, initially, what starts off is just kind of being like an oath that Guts takes. I mean, he's he's beaten by Griffith in a sword fight and he's therefore bonded to uh, Griffith by honour and duty to the oath. Over time, during the Golden Age arc, it becomes about being willing to step on there for the friends that he makes in the band of the Hawk. Afterwards, the show becomes more about a kind of demonic hunting of Guts and different people. And I think then it's when he realises that's when he steps in and says... I must fight because there's it's the right thing to do. Mm. And he takes all the skills and all the power that he, le- he has from earlier parts of the, the manga and the storytelling and puts it solely towards uh, killing his target and ending the demonic uh, like hunt that he's been uh, subjected to. And I think that might be, in a sense, when he's talking about like how he doesn't find a purpose, he must have his own dreams, his own ambitions... Uh, and what I think might be one of the most iconic uh, speeches of the show is about having your own dream, your own ambition, your own goals. That's what defines a man. That, for me, when you re- like when you get to the point of Guts having a target and realising what he has to do, that's when he becomes who he has to be as a person. And I think gravitating towards that, you know, that turning point in the story is what led me to getting the, the mark of the sacrifice, which is the probably the most iconic part of the Berserk lore, uh, which is the brand that's placed on Guts. That is what draws the target of these demonic hunters to him. I have that on my chest for a reason, and it's because of the, the message that it left me, the feeling that it leaves me with when it mm. comes to the Berserk story, and that's... Uh, it, I mean, it's, when I say, like, it starts off like I, don't actually, I didn't enjoy the initial exposure to Berserk, but then it grows on you over time. That's what it leaves you with over the course of, like, 25 episodes. Yeah, it, it definitely it leaves it leaves quite an impression on you because while uh, 
just say for example, if you you don't really sympathize or you don't really sympathize with the character guts, you think it is just a bit of a meathead. There are still plenty of other, you know, very well fleshed out characters within them that within or within themselves that are within the story that are there for you to pick up on. Like Casca, she is uh, the so she's guts's not guts's uh, Griffith's sort of lieutenant in the uh, the band of the hawk. She's uh, constantly struggling to you know be noticed by Griffiths despite her skill with a with a sword or skill in the battlefield. And there's plenty to go off of that. And then there's the character of uh, Corcus, who is basically you know in the same boat. It's just like, well, why is this guy getting all the attention <laughs> off of Griffith? So there's there's all these other characters that you can you know jump into, and you go, right, I can I prefer it from this this guy's standard. There's a believable if you just, group dynamic. Uh, or if you're just along for the the ride and just want to watch all these characters develop, you can take the viewpoint of Pippin, who's just he's just happy to be there. <laughs> he's just this giant, like bigger than guts, but just he's just happy to be there. He's always smiling. Yeah, I think that is part of what makes it so so easy to attach self to the to the story is watching all these characters survive and push forward and work for each other, uh, either to greater or lesser extents. To help each other out and you know maybe just live through the next day and maybe one day they'll get their their farm away from it all and they'll settle down with a dog and a wife and you know have the kids and all that and live a happy life but you're here for not only the suffering that they'll have to endure to get to their goals but to see how they come together as better people mm. and that's what a lot of people walk away from it from or walk away from the show uh, with that feeling and then that's why they pick up the massive manga which has been in production since the 1980s uh, yeah. believe it or not and uh, it has all been penned by hand pen written and drawn by Kentaro Mira and with his passing there's an unfortunate question that we have to answer and that is what's next because there's a lot of people who believe that without Mira the show does not go on uh, yeah. and I think to an extent I mean as much as you know, I think in general uh, we who imbibe pop imbibe the pop culture uh or want to do we are kind of greedy when it comes to story we love a good story we we always want more prime example when good omens came out the neil gaiman terry pratchett book there was only ever going to be one series on amazon prime but the the impact that the first series had people kept lobbying for more we always want more of a good thing which i think is kind of a fault of human beings right now uh, take stranger things most people said it should have ended season one i don't really agree it's a good show let it keep going but at the same time with versus Eric, we need to tread very carefully because it's it's mira's vision it is his you know at this point 41 year old baby that he's birthed and carried through his life uh, how it ends should be up to him but if done right and respectfully I can see people being okay with the ending, but ultimately, I think the best thing to do would just be to leave it where it leave it where it lies. Yeah, I, I understand that perspective, and I have a lot of people that I really look up to, and like manga and the review like groups that are former in the anime and stuff like that. People that I really respect, and when they say it has to end, it can't be taken forward, and I'm like, I don't know because I am in two minds when it comes to sequels. I used to rail against bad sequels and how they ruined uh, properties that I loved and I was there as well. But at a certain point I realised that a bad sequel does not take away from the original experience 
if someone makes a bad fourth movie from a trilogy you love, you can still have that trilogy you love. And I think you can kind of have your cake and eat it too in this situation where you can leave Berserk as it is for the fans who insist that a Mura-only version must exist and that must be it and everything and all that there ever was and will be. And then you can continue on afterwards with what he left behind. Now, that obviously requires there to be something that has been left behind. We talked about this before we started, that uh, George R. R. Martin is probably the most famous case of this. Game of Thrones is massive, and a lot of people want to know the real ending after season 8 of the TV show didn't quite live up to expectations. And he left notes in the event that being a 70-year-old man uh, who is massively overweight and living in America, uh, that he might not make it to the end of his books. So he and a shared group of confidants know the ending and how all the plot points play out because the ending is set to be the same as the show but with a different route taken to get to that ending. Yeah. However, we're not sure if this has happened with Berserk. Uh, the manga industry is famously closed off to outsiders and investigators and journalists so it's hard to know exactly what has gone on, what's been passed on. Uh, we do know, however, that Mira has taken on uh, two assistants that have been working with him for a couple of editions now um, and working with him on another separate story that he was uh, developing with them just to give them time to grow and change and improve so that they could match his level of artistry because when you look at Mira's work, it is art and it's pure, like it is classically art. When you go and look at some of the drawings that have been done, try and find the quiet moments of Berserk because I think that's where it really shows through. It's the, the action scenes are incredible, but the little soft details that he can put into different moments for the characters that's what really grows in flesh out those little quiet moments of character between absolute chaos and bloodshed mm-hmm. and he has been working with those guys for a while now and one of them at least has said he will be trying he said he will do his best uh, on twitter and i'm hoping some kind of production diary and story notes have been handed over so that we at least get some version it will not be the pure mirror version i'm yeah, okay with i that. think it'll be a as close to it. Hello? 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 So I thought you dropped off there. No. You said, when are you go then? Oh, yeah. I, I, I agree with you there. I don't think it'll be 100% pure blood mirror, but it'll be, it'll be his vision just maybe, maybe tweaked slightly. It won't be 100% full blood Viltrumite Omni-Man. It'll be Mark Grayson... You know, 95% pure blood. Yeah. And I'll I'll, I'll take that. I'll take whatever I can get because this story means a lot. And I'd, I'd yeah. like to see the ending. Let's see how this all resolves. Um, there are big philosophical questions at play uh, regarding the broader story of Berserk. And obviously, can't get into those without spoiling the show and all that. And I don't want people to experience the podcast through us yammering about it or experience yeah. the show without us yammering about it on a podcast. I think that if we have enough to end it based on and you know everyone's willing to do it I want like sign offs from anyone who might be involved I want there to be no ill will regarding any kind of future publication um but I from what I've heard the last panel the last shots and the last scenes of Berserk as written by Mura are gorgeous and would be a fantastic way to end the series unfinished um but I I'm open to the idea of them continuing yeah, I think there'd be some slight reluctance for me, but at the same time, if it's done 
respectfully and it's done well, I would tune in as and when it was available. Yeah. Because as you know, I'm not a massive manga reader, but Kentaro Miura has caused me to, has made me think about buying some manga. If I wasn't, you know, jobless right now, I'd be buying a lot of manga, specifically the deluxe editions, because they just look beautiful. Yeah. There is a, a deluxe edition of Berserk that, if, even if you're not a fan, the idea of having these ominous black tomes sitting on your bookshelf, it's very appealing. And especially when you mm. take it out and it's that full black leather and it's got the mark of the mark of the sacrifice on each one. And I think they're up to eight volumes of it now. And I was really tempted to, but I, I want to take these books, I want to use them, I want to read them and experience them. I would be far too precious about what, like how I handled those, uh, mm. the limited editions. I'd be freaking out about anything that came near them. I'd be handling them with silk gloves, people getting slapped for coming too near them or breathing on them too heavily. Like I want to... Yeah. I want to use these books. I want to have them dog-eared by the time I'm done with them. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. And especially when it's... If it is the special editions and the kind of... The, the, the artwork inside it and what that's contributed to, you'd want to treat that with the utmost respect because another uh, aspect to Berserk that we haven't really spoken about is the knock-on effect that this has had on pop culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really hate the term pop culture. I really, really hate it. I'm against it. It's just, you know, what used to just be in general nerd cult or nerd things is now a culture and it's now popular and things like that. I don't well, like it. It was that's, nerd that's culture a, and now it's pop culture and it's just because yeah, that, Marvel made That's a movies. whole other dis uh, discussion for another time, but uh, its impact on comic books in terms of, uh, not comic books, uh, yeah, I'd say comic books, video games, specifically in video games, uh, other animes, uh, is, is immeasurable because you don't get Dark Souls without Berserk, yeah. right? You don't get uh, the the Dark Knights in Final Fantasy without Berserk. Yeah. Even my Smash Bros. character, Ike from Fire Emblem Radiant Dawn, is a guts type character. He, you know, he's got the big sword. He's got the you know the armored the shoulder you know, armor. He's got the cape. The shoulder he's... armor. Got the cape. He's basically you know video game anime guts there's so much that guts and berserk is responsible for and that is where its legacy lies and not only its direct influence on you but its influence on you know culture its influence on popular culture yeah i mean this is at the point where it was being reported by the bbc like, yeah. as a main, like, major news story of, by the way, you should know, Kintamira has died. And if you don't know who he is, here's a brief introduction. And if you don't have any idea of what he's made, here's everything that he's inspired. And the list is pretty impressive for yeah. one man. And, um, I mean, to the point where you talk about, like, the, the influence of Guts as an anime character on other anime characters, the idea of the Black Swordman is such a trope. But it's still held in very high regard because of the quality mm -hmm. of Berserk. Uh, when uh, Sword Art Online first came out as a TV show, there was a fucking riot online when uh, Kirito, who is this anime like wannabe bad boy, but is kind of just a dick, declared himself to be the Black Swordsman, and everyone's like, "Excuse you, you did not earn that title, sir. That belongs to the one and only Gatsu. Like we are not fucking around here, son." Um, yeah, but even then, like, I'm not gonna lie. That's what that is what stopped me watching that show because. A lot of people said, "Oh, you should watch. Uh, you should watch uh, Sword Art Online. It's about this guy who gets trapped in a video game." I was like, "All right, cool. Uh, tell me who the main character is." 
He went, oh, it's, it, it's uh, this guy, uh, was it Kai Kirito? Uh, yeah, Kai Kirito, Kirito. And then yeah, Kirito in the, his username is Kirito, so he's referred to as that for most of the show. Yeah. So it's this guy, he's the Black Swordsman. No, excuse me. He ain't <laughs> guts. Excuse you. Yeah. <laughs> he is not guts. Do not dare call him the Black Swordsman. Yeah. And, um, I actually would still say Sword Art Online episodes 1 through 12 are some of the, or 1 through 11, let's say, are mm. some of the best introduction to an animated or just fictional world I've ever seen in my entire life. And then it goes off the fucking deep end at like 100 miles an hour and has never recovered mm. since. Uh, the writing just, it ran. The writing for that show never really had an end game and it shows. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Um, but yeah, the, like people still regard these characters who are 40 years old at this point as being almost sacred um but still like very human at the same time and i think that's a testament to the writing of a fantastic man who has done a great service uh for nerds and uh people everywhere just by mm -hmm. giving this art into the world and making a fantastic show um out of it and then just inspiring so much and yeah hearing him that he's no longer around anymore and this might be it, it really put an absolute dampener on the last, what, I think we're 10 days out now mm. since the announcement and I've only just started to return to the feeling of normal, which is odd. Yeah. It was, it was something that I didn't expect because uh, there's, obviously there's been very, very, very tragic deaths of you know popular people, popular actors, popular musicians and things. Yeah, I assume 2016 would have jaded me in all this. Yeah, but here in Miura died, it was just kind of that, you know, chest punch moment. You're like, oh, shit, I need to sit down and think about this. So, yeah, rest in peace, Kintaro Miura. Yeah, rest in peace. Uh, know that if it is your will to continue Berserk, hopefully uh, you've left it in the right hands. They will Hopefully they'll give it the respect it deserves. But please don't send a sign. You're frankly terrifying, and I don't want to see how you interpret signs. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fucking scary. <laughs> yeah, all of us, all, all Berserk fans, just get a real brand of sacrifice burned into our necks. Oh shit! <laughs> it's like, oh shit, that means we're getting more. But ow, my neck! <laughs> we're getting more, but we're also in for a lot of pain. It's a survival game. Who lives to see the end of Berserk will be a fucking chore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have to joke, kids. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, we have, we have to choke. We can't we can't be serious for too long. It has to come out at some point. Yeah, I, I really worry how I'm going to be as a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Defending people in court, because it'll be like, well, my lord. <laughs> do that name. <laughs> Just be sarcastic as all him. Well, your honour, if he's such a murderer, <laughs> why does he have such dainty hands, hmm? <laughs> he can't hold a knife. <laughs> Look, look at him, little bitch hands. Little <laughs> <laughs> dainty fingers. Lady fingers is what we call them. <laughs> Ooh, lady, lady fingers is a murderer. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> he can barely hold a knife. <laughs> and he can't kill anyone with a pen knife. <laughs> I rest my... I'll leave. I'll, I'm not even going to finish the sentence, I'll just leave. <laughs> <laughs> I'll escort myself up. Speaking of, you know, stories that, you know, scary, because Miura was, he was a... He could tell a dark story. Yeah. Uh, you know who uh, Yoko Taro is? No, I don't. Yoko Taro is the writer and director of a series of games called Nier. And Nier is kind of an odd duck to me because the combat and the gameplay is fun. I'm having a lot of fun with this game right now, but the story is some of the most morose, 
depressing shit you will ever see. Right? Which you... video game are you playing? Just to clarify. Which game am I playing? I'm playing the remake of the the first Nier game. The the original game, I think it was called Nier... It came out in two parts in Japan. We got both of those parts kind of sandwiched together, but put in a slightly different package over in the UK. Yeah, originally, there was two versions called Nier Replicant and Nier Gestalt. Right. Uh, and then, you know, over, he over here, we got both those versions smushed together, and it was just called Nier. And instead of you playing as a young protagonist that gets gradually older... And who's trying to help his sister uh, in the western regions? We were playing as a father trying to save his daughter. And at the end of it, you know, obviously your character didn't really get older as it happened. You were just playing as the same old dude the entire thing. Right. But uh, and then there's the sequel game near Automata, which I have not gotten to play yet. I hope to get to after Replicant because they do, despite being totally different stories, they do connect in weird and pretty cool ways. But uh, yeah, like I said, it's some morose shit. Uh, I did a mission where I had to find a guy's dog because his dog went missing. And uh, what happened was I found the dog. The dog was dead because he had swallowed the medication that he was meant to give to its owner to stop him having heart palpitations and keep him alive. So you go back to tell the guy his dog died and he's dead. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and then, because that was a side quest, motherfucker. This wasn't even full been a main game. I go and continue the main quest of the game. I go to a place called uh, the Forge or something like that, or the Junk Heap or the Junk Forge or something like that. Anyway, big massive, you know, ironworks type thing because the whole point and the whole thing in Near Replicant is you're playing in post-apocalyptic, uh, a post-apocalyptic Tokyo, I think. You know, the whole world is just turned to shit and you're living in the aftermath. So you go to an old factory because you want to get your weapon upgraded. You find these two children... Uh, one of them's called Jacob. I think the other one's called Desmond or something like that. I can't really remember. But they're saying, oh, just you wait. Mum will be home soon. Just don't worry. Mum will be home soon. So then you fight through all these robots. You fight the final boss. You find the children's mother. And the mother is dead next to her lover. And the main character deduces that, oh, well, she must have just chose one night of passion over going back to her children. So then you have to go back to her fucking children and say, oh, yeah, your mum chose to get boned rather than come back and save you, so deal with that. And then the children just go, oh, well, at least she died knowing that somebody loved her. I'll go and tell Desmond that our mother's dead. And you just leave going, okay, I got my sword upgraded. I'm just sitting there thinking, what the fuck is this shit? I may have had my sword upgraded, but my heart has been fucking broken. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And you have a... Your companion through the game is a a magical tome called the Grimoire Vice, who is a sarky motherfucker throughout the whole thing. He's voiced by uh, one of my favourite character or voice uh, actors, one of my favourite characters in Critical Role. Or he voices one of my favourite characters in Critical Role, a guy called uh, Liam O'Brien. He voices Grimoire Vice, and he does a very a very pronounced English accent. And it's just like, well done, you use your sword like you're a newborn with a twig. And <laughs> <laughs> shit like that. And uh, he doesn't make it easy for you. He just goes, well, girl's parents are dead. What are you going to do about it now? We have a mission to complete. We want to save your sister, don't we? And you're just going, okay, I'll put my sword in my back and I'll go and run through this field and I'll get you know more morose, depressing storylines. And then, because I, I looked up Yoko Taro, because I thought, what is this dude's deal? I've heard about Yoko Taro for a while now because uh, Argic waxes lyrical about Nier and if he has devoted this much time to a hack and slash or something that's not Sonic I'm going to pay attention because 
two things draw me into a, a game. Good combat, because the combat you're going to spend 80% of your time involved in combat. Combat needs to be tight. And I need a good story. According to Argic, there was both. So I delved deep into Yoko Taro, because I wanted to find out what the fuck this guy is. And no one knows what he looks like, because he wears this weird mask. And the mask is of a character in the game called Emil. And I don't know who Emil is, I just know the name because my brother has played the previous or the next game in the series and you know, he's told me that that's, that's who this character is. He never takes the mask off and he has some weird, weird ideas for story because he, in a recent interview with some Japanese magazine, told the, or told the interviewer that he has some ideas for Monster Hunter Rise that are fucking weird right <laughs> absolutely fucking weird his idea for Monster Hunter Rise is that upon fighting the final boss the final boss starts talking to you saying right. that we only want to live you you humans have hunted us monsters to extinction we may be destructive but that is no more destructive than you human beings you kill the final boss the final boss destroys Kimura village where your hunter is based after he destroys Kimura village all the hunters that you then, all the monsters that you then hunt, can now talk to you and beg you for mercy. That is an interesting the interpretation fuck. of New Game Plus. <laughs> the idea Dude. that like you're going to be beating the shit out of like these weird alien dinosaurs, and they're going to be like, "Please, master, don't hit me." <laughs> yeah, you're sitting fighting a fucking Rathalos, and it goes, "Please, I just want to live." It's like fucking. Uh, you remember Van Helsing? I have Helsing? a wife and kids at home. <laughs> yeah, do you do you remember Van Helsing? Uh, the Hugh Jackman yeah. Yeah. You remember Frankenstein in that? Yes. How he, saw, he, had, he had an opera singer's voice. I just imagine all the monsters sitting there. I just, no, we want humanity. Do not kill us. We only want to hug. <laughs> we only want to live. We want life. Life, dear boy. As you're stabbing it with a sword eight times your body. Yeah, because I've seen some of the gameplay from Monster Hunter Rise, and a lot of the executions are quite brutal. And I think it'd be a bit off. It'd be a bit much. Like I, I understand the idea of making the hunters kind of reconcile, question their actions, yeah, and questioning themselves and saying, "Is is this the right thing to do, really?" Um, and but then having them do these like gruesome executions as these monsters plead for their life, I'm like, that's a bit too much on the nose. Yeah, it's especially when maybe... you've already gone through the game once, murdering everything and not having it yeah. be an issue. If you've caught to the final boss of uh monster hunter game you usually at a pretty decent pretty decent level because monster hunter games get quite difficult towards the end bosses they get quite long in terms of how long you have to fight because they've just got a ton of health at the end of that you don't want to be made fun of by a monster for trying to beat it up <laughs> don't plead for your life no. just, please don't let it plead for its life just take the sword yeah I mean, clearly, the the populations aren't dwindling because you could fight a thousand Rathalos in a row, then a fight thousand and one, and no one says, no, there's no more Rathalos left. They just keep spawning. I think that would have been a more interesting uh, finale, is that you kill it, yeah. and you realise you've killed the last of whatever it is that you were fighting, and it's never coming back. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could be interesting, but at the same time, in high rank, it takes you a while to get certain pieces for armor for example uh, if i'll pick around the monster you're fighting a monster called the astalos which is this big lightning dragon thing if you want one of its uh, lightning gems it takes you a fucking long time to get that gem because drop rates are a thing 
you could hunt maybe 80 of them and maybe not get what you're after. If you could only, if you had to hunt 80, but at the same time you hunt 80, but you could only fight that monster another 20 times, I think that would just frustrate a lot of Monster Hunter players, myself included, because I'm incredibly unlucky when it comes to that game. Well, I, wonder, I don't get the drops that I'm ever after. I wonder about that as an idea for stuff like Destiny. Um, so, like, with Destiny, it's always online, shared multiplayer world. You can jump in and out of different squads with different players that are online all the time. Um, but there's these limited edition events called raids where you're going in and just fighting a big mm. boss. And I would love to see them just have the balls to say, okay, everyone's running at, this, at the same time. First person to kill the boss is the only person to kill the boss. And that's it done. That's the event. Just to do it as a joke for a week and then bring it back afterwards. But they just give Borderlands one... tried that for a legendary drops. And yeah. people got so angry they just went, okay, right. If it's not just a rush to get the one legendary that drops. You can all get it now. Yeah. I think that'd be fun as a, as a, as a bit as a meme for like a week. Mm. Uh, just to try and bring the fan base back, but <laughs> I, uh, I having dropped out of doing the raids and stuff because I think I've done all of them for Destiny One, and it was a it was an exercise in pulling your own teeth out with a pair of pliers, mm. and I do enjoy them. They're they're like a weird puzzling challenge type thing at the same time, um, but I would just say, um, having them having there be like an extra limited availability to them even for a little bit would be really interesting to see, just, just even to gauge community reaction to something like that. Because um, when we're having always online games, I think there's a chance to play with games in a way that we didn't before. And I feel like people aren't really exploiting that in the way they should. Although we'll get plenty of opportunity, because I see that um, basically everyone has seen the value and the money made by stuff like Destiny and Grand Theft Auto Five. that they're yeah. saying uh, this is the new business model, uh, like an online high-level free-to-play game. So not like the mobile phone free to play games that you can chuck money at, but just giving someone a gaming experience and then charging them for the cosmetic extras. That's kind of what uh, Monster Hunter does as well, because uh, they don't charge you for new game content. They don't charge you for just say they release a new monster and that brings uh, new event quests and new hunts that you can do. Uh, they don't charge you for that. Those are free updates. But if you want to buy cosmetic things, they're about three ninety nine for dlc packs so i think that's probably the way to do it don't hide content behind paywalls just hide shit that people might want behind paywalls well what i would say to that is the difference is that monster hunter you're paying for the game itself like you're still putting down 40 50 60 quid yeah at, at the start and you get the the experience of the game so i agree with you on that but this the idea yeah. that's coming through is make something that's free and then nickel and dime every little bit at the end of it that's a bit shady to me Oh yeah, that's that shady as hell. Because I feel like at that point you're incentivized to make maybe not roadblocks, but increase the like increase drop rates and stuff like that, uh, or decrease drop rates to frustrate players to get them to buy the solution to the problem you make to force yeah. them to play the game the right way. Not yeah, don't do the battlefield, not battlefield, battlefront two. Yeah, uh, patch where they just said, oh, you want Darth Vader? Well, just pay for him, man. Don't wait for a drop. <laughs> or, or if you don't want to pay for him you can enjoy a, a, a feeling of pride and accomplishment in unlocking him manually yeah just spend 80 hours playing our game <laughs> to unlock him once yeah uh, that was such a shit joke I still laugh at the fact that that is the most downvoted comment in the history of Reddit it's deserving <laughs> of its title I'll be honest yeah so that's the thing Battlef uh, Battlefront 2 actually turned out to be a not bad game Quite once, a Star Wars once you ripped all game. the shit out of it <laughs> yeah, but they had to 
they had to perform some surgery on it. It, it needed some vital life-saving surgery that is uh, basically just tear all the uh, monetization out of it and then just make it a normal game like we had back in the day. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that as much as I hate mob activity like that, where the, the fan base just has a riot until you know the owners capitulate, I feel like we do need to have that from time to time. Uh, yeah. I, I think Battlefield 2 was a, a, a Battlefront Battlefield, Battlefront, okay. Battlefront, Battlefront, yeah. Two was justifiable, but it's going to get real hard now that like people know that's the limit and then adjust accordingly. Like, I wonder where the limit will be next time. It's hard to tell, because I mean, uh, Mob Mentality brought back the PlayStation Three store. That's true. Uh, Mob Mentality changed Sonic from looking like a weird Nicolas Cage monster to something that actually could be in a video game. <laughs> so, Mob Mentality is a good thing, but. When you start, uh, you know, lobbying for things that maybe you shouldn't be lobbying for, that's when mob mentality should maybe take a backseat. Yeah, I, I think I'm just overly cautious about it right now because I'm listening to a podcast about the history of Rome, and the pivotal point of everything going from a glorious uh, campaign of uh, just conquest over the barbarians to the north and over all of Italy, um, the moment it switches from that to a complete fucking shit show is the introduction of mob violence. <laughs> it's yeah. literally, as soon as someone realises, hey, we can just hurt these people who say they can't be touched, and we can just walk around with swords, and what are you going to fucking do about it? There's 10,000 of us. Everyone then goes, oh yeah, we could all just do that, and the city, and the city just burns for like 10 years afterwards. Yeah. So I'm a bit hesitant to just say, yay, mob violence. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it just, seems I mean, like there's always uh, a consequence. As you should be. <laughs> it's like... Uh, Part of my issue with shit that's happening with Gina Carano right now is she's just urging people not to get vaccines and not to get masks because they can't they can't tell us what to think and she's like whipping a whole bunch of people <laughs> into a frenzy. Like, dude, I get Gina Carano is obviously the main thing is she's she's very she's very hot. She's a good actress, she's a very good fighter, but at the same time, she's an anti masker, anti vaxxer, <laughs> Trump supporter. Listens to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> Do not take advice from this woman. There's some shit that the critical thinkers, you need to be critical of them as well. Yeah, but then again, most people just look at her and go, had the boobies. She has a good point. <laughs> she, she had the boobies. She was in the Star Wars. <laughs> she, she, she's in the Star Wars. <laughs> she's in Star Wars. She got the boobies. She got a good point. She got the boobies. <laughs> she go pew pew in the Star Wars. She stand next to other women in the Star Wars. She, I listened to her on all my vaccine responses. Two people we should not fucking listen to about vaccines. Gina Carano, Joe Rogan. Yes. Neither of them have medical degrees. <laughs> he talks about people who get professionally punched in the head. Don't go yeah. to Joe Rogan for vaccine advice. Fucking love this the guy. This is the same guy Hilarious that wants comedian. to shave chimpanzees and make them play professional sports. <laughs> Don't listen to Joe Rogan. It's, uh, it's always fun when he fucks up in some capacity and you're like ah man been doing it a lot lately though man you've been doing it a lot <laughs> I, I'm glad I'm off the hype train I'm not gonna lie I'm, I'm listening to more Tim Dillon now uh, <laughs> it's just insane rants <laughs> I, I don't know who Tim Dillon is um, he is the guy Joe Rogan was uh, propping up for a bit and weirdly enough he seems to be inheriting the, the podcasting king crown uh, ever since Joe went off the crazy edge although Tim Dillon is weirdly enough crazier than uh, Joe it's just that with Tim it's more believable as a joke Whereas with Joe, you're like, he might actually believe some of this shit. Uh, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Should we be wary? Maybe. Um, but no, uh, Tim Dillon is just an outrageous uh, comedian who 
sold mortgages right up until the stock crash in 2008 and uh, spent most of his time during that uh, during that brief interlude in economic freedom uh, doing uh, cocaine. So that's where his comedy comes from. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> I suppose you've got to have a hobby, I guess. Yeah, um, and he's he's fantastic. He's probably one of the most, like, he's that guy that, when, you, when you're being that young, edgy, like, wannabe comedian where you're just saying the offensive shit to get a laugh, he's the guy who yeah. figured out how to say the dumb offensive shit and then tie it into a point that's actually funny. And, mm. uh, yeah, a big fan of his. His, his podcast, yeah. it's just him and his producer, and it's just him going off on a level that would make Alex Jones buckle a bit uh, <laughs> for, like, an hour. And just whatever he feels Make Alex like. Jones go real in a bit, man. <laughs> he me. actually brought... Uh, Jorgen actually brought Alex Jones and Tim Dillon in the same room for one of his podcasts. Oh, really? And uh, it was actually not as weird as I expected to be, because obviously we have the, the epic uh, four-hour podcast with... Uh, what's his name? Uh, the guy I can't I can't stand. It's uh, it's the other conspiracy theorist that Jorgen hangs about. With. Oh, Eddie Bravo. Eddie Bravo, yeah. Uh, they had him, Eddie Bravo, and Alex Jones in the same room just talking shit for like four hours. It was fantastic. But they then had Alex Jones come in with Tim Dillon, and like Tim's just subtly weirding out Alex Jones in a way that I've not seen since or before. <laughs> he has that power level, so I, I find him very entertaining. But he's been smart enough to shut up about vaccines, so we'll let him, you know, keep his thing going. Yeah. I wish more people would, because if you get superpowers, just use them for good. That's all I'll ask you to do. If there's side effects, just... If they're bad enough, go to a doctor. If you can trust Big big Pharma. But uh, just yeah, deal with them. It's, it's not... It's going to help you in the long run. It's going to drastically reduce your chance of getting COVID. They're not exactly trying to be cloak and dagger with the fact that it's not going to completely remove your chances of getting COVID, but it's going to drastically reduce them to, yeah. the, to the point where there'll be about a 10% chance of you getting the the, the virus. Yeah. And reduces the impact much, much the lower well there. than it used to be. Yeah. It's, um, it's weird. I, 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 every time we have, um, like, there's like a five minute like gap of stuff to do in the lab, we always talk about the funniest conspiracy theory we've heard this week. And it's well, the last couple like year or last couple of months, it's all been like virus related or pandemic or the masks are fake and um, someone was apparently taking apart a mask and noting all the the silver worms that are inside these uh, standard grade masks. And what's the government trying to do with these silver worms? Those are fibers from inside the mask, sir. It's a fiber mask. <laughs> are you retarded? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> we need to know these things before we listen to any more of your Facebook rant. Yeah, the the, the leading scientific. Journal is not Facebook, kids. I don't know how many times yeah. I need to tell you this. I, I still think the best conspiracy theory that I've heard about uh, the vaccine was the woman in the chemist that was just all, I'm not taking the vaccine. It'll rewrite my DNA. My son said after, he was on the internet for a while, and he said that if we take the vaccine, we'll end up with an extra thumb. I'm not hearing that. <laughs> and I just thought, you fucking idiot, a vaccine. As far as I know, I could be wrong on this, and please tell me if I am, because... I don't want to spread any misinformation out there, but I'm pretty sure, maybe you know, seventy-five percent confident that a vaccine cannot rewrite your DNA. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. As far as I'm aware, it's, no. Can't fucking happen. Although, if you want a, a good laugh at the uh, just vaccine skeptics, will be charitable about that term. In general, uh, I would recommend uh, H Bomber guy's hour and forty-minute-long video on the original MMR causes autism vaccination issue. 
um, mm. that started this whole thing back in like the late 1980s. And it's fascinating to see. He just basically found the original paper that caused the whole scare, uh, shows how that was debunked within 30 seconds of publication by, you know, real scientists. And then... <laughs> People that know what they're doing. <laughs> then proceeds to explain why someone would go about making up such claims. And he points you to the fact that uh, the doctor who wrote the original report really wanted to make you understand that vaccines uh, for MMR caused autism because he was giving you a test kit uh, because he believed that you could find a link between the MMR vaccine and a gut issue, like a, a, a gastrointestinal issue, that he could diagnose with a kit and therefore prove your child was autistic with a kit. He was about to make millions off of this with the stated intent being it's not actually for public use, it's to be sold to lawyers and people involved in lawsuits against vaccines for MMR. He was about to open the floodgates for sheer cash uh, when it came to um, like MMR vaccination diagnosis. If mm. he was even a tenth right and could make the kits work and sell those kits, he would then start a panic about MMR vaccinations, start a bunch of lawsuits... And then sell the people who were starting those lawsuits the kit they needed to prove the lawsuit was right. That man was about to make bank on this fucking issue. And how it got that far is really impressive. And the extent the like medical community, the scientific community came together to put it down. And I'm gonna say put it down, I mean like execute the fucker in the ditch. It was yeah. it was needed, it was the correct response from the, the community at the time. But what's more impressive is how it still stuck around. And the fear was still there like five, ten years later. To the point where I, my mum brought this up at one point and she said that when I was young, they were genuinely a bit confused about whether or not I should get the MMR, MMR vaccine to begin with. And they got me it because they're not idiots. But yeah. there was like a moment of hesitation there. And that was like years after it had already been debunked. But the fact it was still there in people's minds five years later was impressive. Like that's how big of a scare this was. But H Bomber guy takes it all to task and does a great and funny video about just ripping into these idiots. It's genuinely one of the most. It's just been a blast uh, yeah. watching it. I think I've seen like the the whole thing through one time, and then I went back and rewatched different chunks of it um, yesterday just for laughs at his jokes because he's just tearing into these absolute like cretins, like they're just horrible people. But uh, yeah, he really takes them to task. It's a fun watch. Yeah, and the more. The more people that know the truth about the vaccines, the better. So, uh, don't have a segue for this. What you, what have you been watching? Uh, what you've been playing? What you've been listening to? Uh, I have managed to watch Castlevania season four. Um, oh, so good! Have you seen it all the way through? Yeah, I, uh, I, um, I don't parse things out as much as I should, which is why I'm quite glad of. Disney, Amazon, and Netflix's new thing of giving you an episode a week because <laughs> I just, you know, tear into things and watch all of it at once. They didn't do it with Castlevania, but, you know, I uh, watched all of it within two days. <laughs> just watched the full fucking thing. I may have watched it all in one day. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I just mainlined that shit right into my veins, and it was fantastic. <laughs> It was it was a vaccine for boredom. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I, I I don't want to spoil this because I want people to see it. Um, yeah, but I, I think the fight between 
Um, Belmont BBEG. Hmm? Belmont and the BBEG. I'm just going to say death. I think that we big can... bad evil guy. I, I no, think because can... that, that that's a that's a spoiler, man. No, the reveal I... at the end of it is no, no. no the, the 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 spoiler is who death was. I see the fact that it ends with ends with uh, Belmont conquering death. I don't see that as a spoiler that much. Right? Ends with him fighting death. I think yeah, I... that doesn't really hit I... as much of a a spoiler as I mean, yeah, it kind of is, but it's so fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it was one of the best animated sequences I've seen in a while. Um, I put it up there with the Broly fight at the end of Dragon Ball Super Broly, and the end of My Hero Academia uh, Two Heroes, just mm-hmm. astoundingly fucking gorgeous. Um, yeah, the fluidity of the animation. I mean, watching the sound effects, like everything just popping off at just the right moment, and just everything being this huge moment that. It's been building for four seasons, and it yeah. felt right. Um, bit of like the characters for the show have always been kind of meh for me. Like there's there's cool like fun little quirky moments, but I, everyone just kind of seems I, I'm not as into the characters as maybe other people are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the season for like having it wrap up this arc, um, which as far as more is the, the plan. Has it's yeah. just a fantastic cap on the end of uh, four seasons of just great animation from a Netflix studio that I'd never heard of before. Yeah, I actually kind of disagree with you. I I really like some of the characters. Like I think uh, Trevor and Cipher have a fucking great dynamic. I like uh, San Germain, who's just willing to in this season specifically willing to tear the world apart for his own for his own uh, means. The only character that I don't really like, not in terms of how he acts in the story. How he acts in the story is really quite interesting, but his aims is uh, Isaac, the forge master turned, you know, conqueror who just wants to conquer things because humanity's too simple to do it themselves. He started off, you know, I'm going to build an army and I'm going to retake humanity for Dracula's sake. Then no, I don't want to really do that. I just want to, you know, build my army and show, show my strength, show that I am, I can lead my own destiny. Now it's just, you know what? I'm kind of good. Yeah, I was like, gonna say you just pick a path. It was just I thought I'd like had some weird like pass out moment where I just I've been watching it with a drink in my hand, just woke up like an hour later and just missed where he finished his story. But I'm right in saying that it just ends. For he him. meets up with the other Devil Force Master and just they go, yeah, be good, be good, be good. Yep. Get the peers in. <laughs> well, have we accomplished everything? Not really. Do we want to keep going? Not really. Nah. <laughs> do you want we'll, a Cornell? We'll do it yeah. our way. <laughs> what are we going to do our way? Maybe that's them being that left out. alone for another season of something else if they spin this yeah. off to elsewhere. Because uh, that was the thing I said, I said. If that is how it ends, I'm more than happy to just let it be and I think, frankly, they should let it be. And I think there's a nice conclusion there, but you were saying that there might be plans for another uh, Belmont to go up against the evils of the world? Yeah, I think uh, just because of how how many games there are and how much source material there is, I think they might be doing a follow-up something. And I know the the guy, one of the producers, Adi Shankar, who, you know, I will sing that guy's praises all day long because he made Dread, right? Uh, he is a huge Symphony of the Night fan. I think that's why Alucard appeared as early as he did. That's why he's putting all these little nods in to Symphony of the Night, like Alucard's shield, Alucard's sword familiar, uh, all these different, you know, 
all Alucard's different abilities. I think he wants to do something Symphony of the Night related. I I bet they would want to do something Symphony of the Night related, which starts off with another Belmont going by the name of Richter, who is the strongest Belmont of all time. He's the last Belmont before the Belmonts almost become extinct. The Belmonts basically get fought back into hiding. Uh, it starts off with them. He fights Dracula, but you know, Dracula always finds a way to come back. So Alucard has to rise up and fight that bastard again. Uh, and Symphony of the Night is probably, the, I'd say, the most highly rated Castlevania game of all time. Definitely, obviously the, most the first. Yeah, most famous. Yeah, most well known. So I can imagine what to do something like that. But I can also see him doing uh, something with Simon Belmont, another famous Belmont, the first Belmont. He appeared in the the original Castlevania. Mm-hmm. And there's also just a wealth of other Belmonts. Sarah Belmont, the 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 uh, chronological first Belmont, Leon Belmont, who was with... It's actually uh, just a time-traveling Leon Kennedy from Resident Evil. That guy just can't catch a break. Yeah, Still has he the just gun can't catch a fucking cool. break. He, he just wants to bang Ada. He wants to get himself some Asian persuasion and, you know, have a nice life. But no, Ada is just a big-ass cock tease and she fucks off. Then Leon just goes, screw this. I'm time-traveling. Find Ada's descendants. I'm going to bang them. <laughs> oh, no, that makes me horror my great-great-great-grand-niece or some shit. <laughs> Yeah, the original uh, Belmont, Leon Belmont, he was with the person that becomes Dracula. I think his name is Matthias Kornqvist. He what basically... The fuck? <laughs> hmm? We're not going with Vlad Tepes? No, that's the name he assumes. The original uh, was a guy called uh, Matthias Kornqvist, uh, and he, become, he basically takes the power of uh, Dracula, and then through, you know, Years he abandons his old name, takes a new name, and that's where Vlad Tepesh comes from. Right. Okay. Is uh, that Vlad like Tepesh means something like son of the dragon world? or something like that? Because like Vlad Tepesh was like the ruler of like a certain region. And, yeah, obviously he's yeah. he's based on you know the historical Vlad Tepesh, but right. in the Castlevania games he takes that name. Oh, okay. And he inserts himself into that like position in the rest of the history yeah. of the world. Okay, right. Yeah. It's like that's not that's not Dracula's name. What are you? Yeah. What do you mean? Just... <laughs> yeah. I'm Bill Lugosi. <laughs> I'm Bill Lugosi, yeah. He, I mean, he could have been Dracula. He was Dracula. He could have been the real guy. But then again, if you're talking about movie Dracula, it doesn't get better than Christopher Lee. That guy's fucking terrifying. <laughs> have you seen Nosferatu? Oh, yeah. I was say, I think you need to sit there. I was, if you hadn't, I was going to say, next time we're over, we're going to sit there and watch Nosferatu and just have a fucking riot. <laughs> oh, dude, yeah. I don't know what it is. I've been getting uh, horror films a lot recently. I rewatched uh, Halloween because why the fuck not? Yeah, it's just such a good film. I watched uh, Night of the Living Dead. Movie. That's a great film, man. The original <laughs> Night of the Living Dead, fucking fantastic film. Then you get Dawn of the Dead with Ken Foray. and just that's where superb. I segue to say I've seen Army of the Dead. Oh, see, I set you up, man. Yeah. I slightly watch it, but you said it's it's a it's it's a fun time. It's a good time. It is, I mean, the the initial, like, opening bit is just fan-fucking-tastic. Uh, the, yeah. Like, the opening credits are just absurdly violent and just perfect. Uh, like, it's just, Zack Snyder gets a lot of shit for his action scenes, and I I get it. Like, he doesn't make a deep philosophical movie. He just makes a fucking awesome movie. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing you can say about a 50 cal opening up on a horde of zombies and not say, that was awesome, because it liquefies <laughs> them the way it fucking should do. And, um... Yeah, I, I watched that yesterday with my brothers and we were having a couple of drinks, having uh, 
just an absolute riot watching it's more suspenseful than uh previous stuff that's been in the series um mm. more, more because there's always a direct threat looming over them uh whereas with like the original snyder zombie movie uh which was day of the dead or was that don did he start the dawn of the dead again uh i think I snyder did the remake of dawn of the dead because that was set in the the mall yeah. shopping center yeah and then he got in trouble for making the the main character who was ken Ferreira, uh the black guy making him a white guy if i remember right he got in a bit of bother about that yeah but it, it, that was before it's like, not a good film i like the original well, i like uh, it's Remake. a great one but with that yeah. it's always like okay we're living our last days here we know they're going to break in eventually whereas with this it's more about like walking around the zombies like work more kind of like the walking dead scenario you know when there's uh, like yeah. season one walking dead they cover themselves in like guts and viscera and they're just walking through like a horde pretending they can't be seen and it works there's a lot of that level of just like tension where you're just like all it takes is one fuck up and this whole thing goes sideways and it yeah. does um but they're smart enough to just build tension for like ages and then blow it all out with like a big action scene and then like secure everyone get the characters in take note of the casualties have a bit of drama and then start building tension again with another thing that they've set up way in advance so it's good at just like build release settle build again and uh yeah i, I don't want to spoil it because it's a lot of fun but uh yeah the, the whole thing of it being slow because you said that was a criticism that came yeah. up from friends yeah i've seen uh, uh no friends because uh, i realized something recently that i am of all the people that I talk to about movies, I am perhaps the biggest horror movie fan. Even some of the people that, if I say I point them out to you, go, yeah, I bet that guy likes horror movies. Nah, uh, I could talk to maybe one person about horror films, and that person's you. What? <laughs> like, <laughs> you in trouble, genuinely. son. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I mean, I can watch lyrical about zombie films and shit with you, but I can't really do that with anyone else. So, yeah, if, you, if I'm talking about horror films, it's with you. There's not many other people that I can hear. And uh, the people, uh, the things that I was seeing on Twitter is that there was slow, there was a lot of uh, conversation, there was a lot of just kind of hanging on and uh, but unnecessary slowness. There was the one thing that I did see that was getting praised a lot for hot was uh, how funny Dave Batista looks with glasses. Oh, yeah. Because he's... he's just like a jacked librarian. Really that about. was the exact thing my brother said. It's, it's, it's weird. It's like he's going to start reading a book about poetry, but at the same time, holding an M16 that just like full auto into Horde of Zombies and I'm like yeah it does have that vibe doesn't it he's got that he's just going to an LMG in one hand it just uh, <laughs> well, uh, alas periodic I knew him Horatio <laughs> he's um he's good and he, it's really good to see him because I've, I've always kind of liked seeing him and stuff but he never really gets the lead role so having yeah. him just be let him play Bane center. you fucking cowards <laughs> let <laughs> Dave Batista play Bane let him play Marcus Phoenix do it you cowards there's parts of this where I'm ready. I've now ready to see him as Marcus Phoenix. It's really? more than earned by this point. Like there's points where I'm like, oh, he could do it. He could do it in a drop of a hat. Um, I know he said there was comments that he made about um, maybe stopping playing Drax uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy, and James Gunn was like, if he stops, if he doesn't want to do it, I'll stop making the movies. because uh, there's, there's there's nobody else that could do it. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. But if yeah, he wants to go and be that Marcus is his Phoenix, character. If you want to go be Marcus Phoenix, I'd watch it in a heartbeat. He's yeah. uh, he need to be a little more grim than he is in movies because normally he gets to be like the big guy, but with like a bit of a sense of humor. I yeah. don't think Marcus really has that 
at least not for the majority of the stuff. Like he's allowed a, a quip a movie at most, but like you'd yeah. have to limit the it, writing to that. Yeah, it definitely Marcus gets funnier in the second outing, but in the first one he's definitely he's just he's out of prison. He doesn't want to help. Yeah, but he's doing it because you know well, what the fuck else am I going to do? You busted me out of prison, so he's he's quite somber. But in two, three, and to an extent four and five, he kind of ups the hucks. Yeah, there's one thing you say like unnecessary about the Army of the Dead, and there was one kind of like fake, uh, like oh I can't believe we're not gonna have a relationship type moment, and I'm like, I don't give a shit, shut up, <laughs> and it's it's someone having like a complete kind of, we were supposed to have something special, we could have been together, and I'm like there is a zombie horde outside, this can wait 15 minutes for the chopper, shut the fuck up, <laughs> soldier grab your gun, point it at the zombies and pull the fucking trigger, shut it. <laughs> And it was just like, I don't know why this is here, but the the, the whiplash you get from uh, what happens next is more than justifiable for why they they set up such a weird melodramatic scene. Um, It was was really good time. And I'd recommend it. Um, It's good to have the Of the Dead franchise back because I feel like the zombie discussion was completely lost from those after the Land of the Dead. Um, Mm. I talked on the podcast before about uh, Dawn of the Dead Bloodlines. Which, now that I look back on it, um, I, I'm now looking at it going, I feel that movie was quite disrespectful, in a way, because it was oh. it was released, it must have been filmed during the time of George Romero's death, and released within, like, nine months to a year of his passing, and just completely fucking garbage movie that ruined the legacy of a fantastic franchise, following on from, like, Land of the Dead, and, like, Zack Snyder, uh, Dawn of the Dead, and then the original movies before that. Um, like I don't know if you ever, I actually rewatched the the trailer for Night of the Living Dead, like the original one, mm. and it's fascinating. It's a weird time capsule as to how you make a trailer for a movie that old and yeah. sell like schlock horror to the common masses because it's a TV advert. Like it's it's to be seen by everyone and tempting people who might be interested in a a scary zombie apocalypse movie. It's very interesting. And that's the thing about the original Night of the Living Dead. It was groundbreaking. In more ways than one, I think it was one of the first films to have a black lead character, uh-huh, and yeah. that's reflected in the uh, in the film itself. Because the the main character whose name escapes me, he's saying, "I'm trying to help you guys," but they're like, "No, I'm not following you. Why would I follow you? You're second class citizen." Yeah. And then it's all about him trying to like, look. We're all on the same team here. You know, society is crumbling around us. Just you know, follow my lead. We, I got. We got to get over our weird issues here and. You'll be the be bigger people to survive this. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, oh yeah, and important note for Army of the Dead: the zombie tiger you see in the trailer does, in fact, fuck someone up. Rest assured, nice. you get to see some shit with that tiger. <laughs> awesome. There's there's a lot of like fun moments and weird stuff because I think it's spoiled in the trailer that the zombies have changed somewhat. Those weird behaviors are starting showing up, and yep. uh, it's a lot of fun. It, it does bridge the gap between. Um, the original like Night of the Living Dead zombies, the kind of shambling horde, and the kind of contemporary zombies were stuff not on the same level as like Twenty Eight Days Later or Wreck, but stuff yeah. in that vein where there's like another tier of zombie that is both tied to the original and then a slight change of it, and they're, they're good. They're they're good zombies and they're good uh, fodder for like great action scenes. It's oh, actually it's gruesome as fuck. The movie itself is gory as all hell. Yeah, it's actually something I've kind of got into more 
than just the traditional zombie because as you know my favorite game of all time is resident evil 2 uh there's different variations on zombies and that uh I've, I've warmed up slightly to the fast zombie i still prefer my, sh my slow shambling horde of zombies but the fast zombie has its place the variants on zombies have the place like the the brute zombie the fast zombie the zombie the zombie that can jump large distances and i think what helped that along was uh we're alive by uh casey wayland which i've actually started re-listening to and it still holds up man it's still a very good yeah uh audiobook yeah and i think that helped me along to kind of you know there can be different variations on zombies because just as there's different variations of people yeah you know there can be different variations of zombies one can be a behemoth one uh, can yeah. be a runner or a jumper one can be a little guy that's just you know the brains of the outfit yeah, I mean, it's weird that it's worked for so long as a, like, something Left 4 Dead, where it's a, it's a gameplay mechanic, but then when you bring it into, like, the narrative, it has to be a lot more restrained, it has to be kind of more based in something, it has to, like, draw from something, like, inherently these people were, as humans, uh, more athletic, or they were just bigger, they were bodybuilders, they were, uh, or they were more sneaky, they were, uh, like, there were certain people before the virus, or before the, the, mm. the, the infection, the pandemic, whatever, and then, as zombies, they keep those traits somehow, like, part of the core of their personality lives on in yeah. um, zombies. And I, I think, actually, weird enough, in Dawn of the Dead Bloodline, which I hated so much because they had something that stemmed from the, one of the characters' past lives affect them as a zombie, but it was vegetarianism. Yeah. And I'm like, nobody gives that much of a shit about animals. Like, we love animals, but nobody yeah. gives that much of a shit about animals. <laughs> like, I mean, it, cool your brains. It was cool in a... Day of the Dead, the third uh, Romero film, because that showed them rehabilitating a zombie. A zombie could still do things, just at the slower rate of a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy loved to read, so he gives the zombie a book. The zombie starts reading. Zombie had huge respect for the armed forces, so when he sees... Uh, I can't remember his name. I always called him Dickhead Superman because he had a very Superman head of hair. <laughs> when he sees that uh, Rhodes, that was his name. The, the Dickhead soldier that's trying to you know, keep everyone safe, but he doesn't trust all these scientists and their goddamn science to save people. He wants <laughs> you people guns in your and books, good old American you. boys <laughs> to <laughs> save humanity. He wants two cold uh, beers and a Ford truck. <laughs> exactly. And he actually has country. two revolvers attached to his... Uh, he's got revolver bandoliers on him. He's got two revolvers in the bandoliers. <laughs> uh, he comes in to see the zombie. I think it, Bub is the zombie's name. And Bub snaps off a salute because he's like, oh, armed forces. He's remembering something from her. <laughs> and he hears a uh, Ode to Joy over headphones. And he goes, oh, music. So I kind of like that in the sense of, the, you know, there's still part of the personality there. But if it affects a zombie to the point where the zombie's a vegetarian, <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> Zombies should eat brains. Yeah. And that's uh, my, my favorite thing that's kind of crept into zombie uh, f like culture, in a way, uh, for lack of a better term, is that there's always now somebody behind it. There's always something. It's not just there was an accident, someone hit by a meteor. I think that's like the original, like Night of the Living Dead. There was a meteor landed and it yeah, radiated it out some poison and it reanimated the dead. It's mm. now just it's not an accident anymore. It's someone somewhere was about to make a ton of money and it went sideways. And now this is this is the world we now live in. And I like that yeah. that crept in as one of these little subtle uh, digs and people. And it, it happens in Army of the Dead as well. It actually happens a lot yeah. in Army of the Dead. Don't think about. Yeah. I like that there's no reason for it because zombie outbreaks for the sake of it. Oh, there was something. Yeah, it used to be based Zombies. on magic, and you're like, can we just not? Because <laughs> it's yeah, gonna get racist. Uh, <laughs> they explained that in Night of the Living Dead that it was 
someone said, oh, this is voodoo magic. And they're like, no, it was a meteorite. <laughs> it was a fucking meteorite. Leave it at that. Can we just have it be a meteorite and not get weird about this for five fucking yeah, minutes? Let's God just damn it. Play the game, guys. Play the game. Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, other than that, um, I watched Bo Burnham inside like 20 minutes before we started this podcast. Probably shouldn't have done that because then I'm sitting here overthinking everything and just trying to reanalyze it. Um, <laughs> and just, I, I actually just tweeted about it before we started and I've now realized that it's been, uh, that has itself been uh, retweeted by Netflix as a joke, their official stand-up account. So it's going to be interesting checking my phone in 30, 40 minutes when we finish the podcast. So, nice. <laughs> oh boy. Um, I think hey, in terms of what I've been watching, I have, do you know what a Taskmaster is? Um, are we talking on the Marvel thing? No, not the Marvel. Uh, the, uh, the Greg Davies, Alex Horn TV show. I'd heard of the uh, the Greg Davies um, show that he it was just the, apparently it was like a redo of an original show from back in the day. Uh, no, uh, for, uh, apparently, or from what I can remember, it's a totally new concept. Hmm. Uh, the, there was a US version that was horrible. As Absolutely always. fucking horrible. <laughs> As is tradition. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah, I caught up on that, and uh, yeah, it was one of the few British t- or English made TV, or Brit- yeah, British made TV shows that I will regularly tune in for because some of the shit that Greg Davies makes these guys makes these comedians do is just it's worth its weight in gold. <laughs> like, uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the last tasks that they had people do was they had to. Uh, they had to inflate a balloon, wrap the balloon, eat three poppadoms, and uh, I think it was something like uh, they had to inflate. Uh, they had to wrap the balloon in uh, wrapping paper, all while saying the word metronome in time with a metronome. Like, okay, <laughs> if this is the kind of weird trick they're going to make and do. I'm along for the ride. And there was one where uh, they had to they had to carry a candle that was on fire that, through like all these different traps and shit, but they couldn't. They couldn't relight the candle, and also one of them couldn't use any words that ended with e's, ended with an e or had a t in the middle. So it's just this ab, it's just absurd, sort of uh, impractical jokers type TV show, where they just get to do these strange and funny as fuck things. And because it's all comedians, they all do it in weird, weird ways. And then you've got, you know, comedians that were on, that were pretty prevalent back in the English, Scottish comedy scene, guys like uh, Bob Mortimer. Uh, no fielding guys like Rob Beckett, uh, Al Murray's on there for a season. All right. Just you know, doing absolute weird shit. It's worth it's well worth a shot. I do like the it, it just is based clearly on hitting four or five different parts of the brain and overloading them all at the same time and just seeing what happens to a human being. Yeah, <laughs> like the hand eye coordination, you know. like picking certain words while performing like challenges based on motor skills and stuff. Just absolutely yeah. fucking with people on every level. Yeah, it was one of them was a uh, paint a picture but don't use your hands. <laughs> and there was no there was no open pots of paint, there was all little bottles of paint that they had to somehow open with their feet <laughs> and paint a picture with it. Oh that one's easy. You just good. step on the fucker and then pick it up from the ground. <laughs> you say, I had to do it, that's what the challenge was. <laughs> yeah. And that that's that's another reason why I like it. The 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 ways that they get round the the uh, stipulations of the challenge are pretty good. So I'd recommend that. Obviously, I've been watching a bit of Castlevania. I've uh, been watching The Bad Batch. Have I, have I spoke to you about The Bad Batch? 
Um, no, but I know it's Star Wars related. Yeah, it is Star Wars. I think at this point I'm getting more enjoyment out of Star Wars TV shows than I am actual Star Wars because I haven't watched the original trilogy in a while. I I don't see myself watching the prequel trilogy again and the sequel trilogy I'd have to be in the the right mood very very <laughs> seldom seen mood to watch those films again but the supplementary material that comes along with it all the all the Disney Plus TV shows has been worth its worth its watch because uh, the bad batch as its name suggests is a quote unquote defective batch of clones but the mutations that those clones have gained have an advantage in the battlefield. Uh, there's a character called Hunter whose senses have all been dialed to 12. He's just, you know, got complete battlefield awareness. There's a character called Wrecker who's just my favourite character. He's a big, dumb barbarian with, you know, super strength. And there's a character called Echo who's a... Uh, he's basically a tech wizard. You know, absolute, you know, gift to uh, you know, technology and things like that. And then there's another character whose name escapes me. Uh and he is the hyper-intelligent one. He's the strategizer. He's the guy that's always trying to figure shit out. Oh. Uh, what happens is during... Spoilers, by the way. Uh, during Order 66, all the inhibitor chips get switched off and the, the order to kill all the Jedi comes through. Uh, but because of Clone Batch 99's defects and mutations, they don't get that order. And they see that the Empire's trying to phase out clones and they're trying to use these guys to basically kill rebellion or kill the rebellion, and the rebellion includes a lot of hungry children and a lot of people just trying to scramble to you know, survive, live their own lives yeah. free of the empire. Clone Force ninety nine defect, and but because they're highly sought after by the empire, they get they get tailed, they get hunted by uh, the empire because they're very valuable and technically they're the empire's property. Mm, yeah. And they also have they also have a another young female clone who goes by the name Omega, who we don't know who she is in the story yet, but it's going to unfold, and uh, it'd be cool to see what happens. That's what I'm saying. And it's just a genuinely fun show. The interaction between the characters is good. It's top-notch uh, Clone Wars-esque animation. It's uh, Dave Filoni, the guy who could literally sneeze on a piece of paper and write Star Wars. This is how Emperor Palpatine sneezed and made a new clone of his son. And people, yes, brilliant, absolute smash. <laughs> what a masterpiece. <laughs> what a masterpiece. And it's genuinely, he, Dave Filoni is explaining shit that doesn't need to be explained, because the last episode that I watched, uh, the Clone Force 99 get given a mission by a character called Sid, who's basically a broker for bounty hunters. And the the mission involves them bringing a car, or bringing, uh, some, bringing something called Moochie, who's this guy's pet, back to them or they think it's his daughter or something like that bring Moochie back to this this client you get paid for it but it turns out that Moochie is actually the rancor from Jabba's palace in Return of the Jedi and he gets returned to Bib Fortuna who's Jabba the Hutt's right hand man and I thought oh we now know where the rancor comes from but at the same time did we need to see a baby rancor also did we need to see that baby rancor get smashed over the head by a boulder by a wrecker the you know (laughs) the berserker character I mean, it if was you're fun. Gonna, yeah, I think, wrong, I think but... the answer to that is yes. <laughs> yeah. Clone on rancor violence is always appreciated. Yeah. But at the end of it, they end up best friends because that's what happens when barbarians fight things. They become good friends with them. <laughs> you know, hey, maybe we're not so different after all. <laughs> yeah, you like smashing things. I smash you with things. We're friends now. 
and then one of them gets hit through a wall. <laughs> yeah. Usually by the other person. But so, like, this is, like, it, it's one thing that, like, the Star Wars universe is always good at. It's always good at, like, filling in its little gaps. Mm. And uh, I think with Disney, like, having scrapped a lot of the background material, I think that there will be a little bit of a push to like, put in bits and pieces. Not all of it, because it was too extensive. Mm. It was too unwieldy to just bring it all into the fold. But yeah. to have, like, new projects coming in and just little, do little bits of uh, repair work in between gaps in the storylines is pretty yeah. nice. And I think I've got to imagine, because Dave Filoni learned from George Lucas himself, I've got to imagine whenever Disney approached Dave Filoni for a new Star Wars idea, he just goes, uh, hold on, I need, to, I need to check something. He just scrolls on his phone and goes, what did George say? What did George say? Oh, right, uh, Clone Batch 99. We're giving them a TV show. Then after that, we're uh, giving uh, Ahsoka Tano, who was... Uh, Anakin's apprentice. She's getting her own show, but she's going to be played by Rosario Dawson, and you're going to love it because she's going to be in the Mandalorian. And everyone just goes, "Brilliant, let's fucking do it." And Dave Filoni just wipes sweat off his head, going, "Thank you, George." <laughs> yeah, it's good to have somebody who might have that tie into the original connection. Yeah, it's kind of like the guy that gets kicked out of school, but he was finished completely before he got kicked out, so he just knows the answer to everything. <laughs> you just got him on your phone, going, "Oh, dude, oh, thank you, I've got that now." That's good. I'm glad someone's making decent Star Wars stuff because I, yeah. I just kind of look at it and I'm like, oh man, this, uh, <laughs> this is a mess. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I, should, I sent you the link to uh, the quote of J.J. Abrams saying uh, should have planned and had some ideas in advance. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh shit, really? You don't say so? <laughs> Couldn't have figured that one out two films ago, three films ago, maybe. Jesus. Holy, when you sent me that message, my thought was, what, what are you saying? Are you genuinely saying to me that the Star Wars films that you put out without a plan would have been better if you had a pre-production meeting. Well, shit the bed. I did not see that one coming. Even just some basic communication between the two directors Pick handling up a the phone. project. <laughs> it was just, hey, Reen, you're not going to do anything weird, right? Nah. <laughs> it's probably and go, Hey, Kathleen Kennedy, I'm going to do this. Cool. Click. That's all it took. Star Wars has become interesting in a, in a weird for me it's just mostly that weird kind of morbid I want to pick in like it's, it's like when you get like a fully roast chicken and you're just yeah. you've, d- you've done with the majority of the beat and they're just like poking around and be like what's that part what's this part? yeah finding little shards of chicken just go oh there's there's a little bit there's a little morsel I think that's the best way to describe it because I'm, I'm kind of the opinion like most people that Star Wars should be left to rest for a little bit just keep the shows going the shows are good just leave the movies because yeah. by god we are all done with the movies at this point. Rise of Skywalker I went to rewatch not long after I bought the Blu-ray because I've only ever I've only used that Blu-ray once so I went and watched the film cinemas then I rewatched it on Blu-ray it's not a good film I don't plan on rewatching that film again because it's just so much of that film bugs me, rubs me the wrong way Did I and they expect you... you just to go along with it did I tell you about the thing I had with, uh, it was not Rise of Skywalker, the, the Last Jedi, the, the second film in the new trilogy? Uh, I don't think you did. Where it was, I was watching it on DVD, because I borrowed it from, I think it was my parents, and, uh, or like my brother. I had it on, and one of the last scenes of Princess Leia, and this is the point where we, we know she died, um, and that this was the last movie with all of her acting in it, and she'd done parts for the ninth one, but uh, it would have to be like edited and stuff in a certain way. And she, uh, like, the film cut her in half for a moment. Like, there was a split in the screen. And I mm. was like, you did her dirty on the, one of the last moments she's ever going to be on screen for her last whole movie. 
I just the <laughs> something about that has always hit me weirdly. Like, I'm not even yeah. that big a Star Wars fan, but like, damn, the disrespect to yeah, you did the quality of this film. <laughs> Anything else you've been playing, watching, and stuff? Uh, games wise, I uh, I don't know what it is. Whenever I finish a year of uni or something like that, or finish a big project, my instinct is always to replay shit. So I went and replayed Resident Evil One on PlayStation Four. Nice. Because if it's a downloaded game, it doesn't tend to sound like a jet engine. It's only if it's a disc that actually has to do any work with. But uh, I, I just I realized or remembered, should I say, that uh, I have never finished Resident Evil Zero. Never even started it really. So I've been playing through a bit of that, and it's kind of a slog. Uh, there's no item boxes. So you can't dump your items in one location then move forward to the next location and have all your items there readily available for you. Mm -hmm. You have to transport your items one by one to a new location. Obviously, you've got 12, character, 12 in, uh, inventory slots between characters. Right. But still, you've got more than 12 items to carry between locations. It gets a bit bothersome. Yeah. You've still not touched eight, have you? No, I finished eight. Oh, you I finished have? it twice. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, I finished it twice because I shit you not, I fucking love that game. Have we talked uh, about that? We have not. I, I was going to say, I don't think right, we did. We I think get right the fuck into it, though. Yeah, let's go for it. I'm curious I, to find out what you think about it because Resident Evil is your franchise. That's your baby. Yeah, Resident Evil is my thing, dog. I will defend tank controllers to the day I kick the bucket. <laughs> uh, they Glad don't lend will. to the game. <laughs> they don't lead, They don't make the game scarier. They just make the game more difficult to control. Uh, that was a big debate amongst Resident Evil fans that the, the, the tank controls lended itself to the horror of the game no they just made it horrific to play <laughs> that's a story for another time uh, no Resident Evil 8 managed to do something that as much as I love RE2 Remake and it is my you know joint favourite game of all time Resident Evil 2 Remake didn't really scare me there was points where it frustrated me because Mr X was just everywhere and he could you know beat the shit out of me but I knew where all the, I knew what the enemies were and where they were, for the most part, after a couple of playthroughs. I didn't really get scared by it. Resident Evil 8 did genuinely freak me out at points, which we'll get to later in the discussion. But the the opening scene, the opening part of Resident Evil 8, where you're fucking fighting through hordes and hordes of lichens and all this other nasty shit, that is probably the most frustrating part of the game because you've got no fucking ammo and there's hundreds of these others. Well, loads of these bastards, tens of these bastards like 20, 30 of these enemies coming at you at different parts as you try to run away and the whole point of it is you need to survive a certain amount of time and then you'll get knocked out and dragged away to some stronghold but obviously you don't know that because you're just thinking I need to shoot and kill every single one of these fucking werewolf mm -hmm. looking dudes and uh, get to safety uh, and after the events of the game unfold you find out that you need to find four parts of the four parts of the MacGuffin to, you know, expand or to get to the next part of the story. Uh, I don't want to spoil the game because it is genuinely... What hasn't been spoiled by trailers, I want to remain spoiler-free because it's genuinely such a good game that I recommend people play it. It is uh, it's good for new fans of Resident Evil because it has a Resident Evil 7 recap and that's all you really need to know before going into 8. Uh, That's good. Seven and eight are kind of a closed story centered around Ethan and Mia Winters. Uh, obviously, it's got Chris Redfield in there, but he's just kind of there as a background character. Like, I tie this shit together with other games. That's all he's really there for. 
I'm, I'm here just, to bless the canonization of this. Yeah, I'm just here to bless the canon else. and trying to get Ethan to fuck my sister. That's, that's one of my favorite Resident <laughs> Evil memes. It's just, there was the, the Mario Kart meme where it's uh, Leon's face, I think, over Luigi, and then uh, Chris Redfield's face over Mario, and then he's holding something in his hand. It's obviously a red shell, but he's put a, someone's photoshopped in uh, Claire Redfield. And it's just Leon going, it's just Chris going, Leon, enough fucking around, get over here and fuck my sister and continue the bloodline. <laughs> fucking love it. But uh, the what really makes Resident Evil 8 stick out for me is the 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 sections, different sections of the game, because the first section of the game is pure survival horror, that you're in a, you're in a giant mansion-esque castle. It looks like the original Arclay Mansion. It feels like the Arclay Mansion. You're getting stalked by uh, Lady Dimitrescu, which the whole, oh, you know, oh, Lady Dimitrescu, I'm just going to let her catch me. You know what I mean, dog? That got <laughs> boring very quick. It just it got really annoying. Step uh, on me, please. <laughs> yeah. I, got, I was over that so fucking quickly. Uh, then uh, as you go into the next game, or the next part of the game, it's kind of evocative of... Is there other horror tropes where you can't defend yourself? You just have you have no guns. You just need to solve puzzles and get the fuck out of there. It's quite survival horror esque. Then it goes more into action with the last two sections because it's quite a bit Resident Evil Four. You're going through a village. You're trying to fight this giant water monster. It's just it combines different elements of Resident Evil and it makes it as great as the sum of its parts. That's good. But although with like how cookie and weird Resident Evil's been getting, when you said you fight this giant water. And I, I, there was a half second pause there, and I really expect you to say watermelon, because <laughs> that's just the level of Resident Evil's at these days. Where it's just like fuck it, watermelon zombie monster. Yep. You fight this weird mutated zombie fish thing. <laughs> but uh, you, the whole the sections of the games are divided up into the domains of the four lords, because the whole point of the the whole I suppose is not really a spoiler. This is just you know story details. You play as Ethan Winters again who is trying to find his daughter. His daughter is embroiled in this big plot with uh, the a character called Mother Miranda, who is this... She has some connection to the powers or the abilities that were used by the Bakers in RE7. And she has her four children or her four lords, the first being Lady Dimitrescu, the tall vampire lady, another one being this weird puppet maker, puppet uh, ventriloquist woman called uh, Donna... Ben, uh, Beneviento. I've seen segments with a weird puppet, yeah. Yeah, who you have to destroy, and it's fucking gratifying because I hated that section of the game. <laughs> uh, then there's the third one, which is Moreau, the weird fish man. And the fifth one is a character who's been called Max Nito. Because he looks like uh, a Twitch streamer that I follow called Maximilian, and he has the powers of Bank Nito. <laughs> it's all explained that it's his virus that allows the spores that he emits to control metal. It's, it's pretty cool, and that's one of the things I've always liked about Resident Evil. They explain the absurd through science. Kind of. <laughs> it's, it's bunk science. It's absolute bunk. But it's cool that they do it, and I love the fact that they do it. Anyway, the the second part of the game that you go to, the puppet house, is where the freaky event happens. Because it's spoilers now if you don't want to be spoiled for the game. Uh, apologies, Colin, if you wanted to play this game, but I'm going to spoil this thing because it is fucking freaky. Uh, you're going through the puppet house. I can't remember the... I think it might just call the uh, Beneviento Estate or something like that. I can't remember. Uh, you're going through the basement of this house and you have to you have to start off the, this part of the game by disassembling a mannequin of your wife to find keys and clues and things like that. Jesus. Uh, once you, you have no guns, by the way. Right. Your guns get taken off you. Uh, 
So you find parts to the you find keys and you find puzzle pieces. You put the puzzle pieces in the right place. You put the keys in the right place. You get to go back to the elevator. So you think, all right, I'm done here. I'll go back to the elevator. And as you're walking back to the elevator, a wailing, screeching, squidgy-looking zombie monster fetus comes at you. And it is wailing and screeching and screaming, you know, shouting, mama, dada, you know, daddy, come here and all this stuff. And I, my first thought was, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Screw this thing. I have seen so, that monster in particular, and it is a definite fuck this shit moment. Yeah, it is. A, if I had a gun, motherfucker, be glad I'm unarmed. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be getting I, all the magazines in your mouth right now. Yeah. Full on Iron Storm, baby. Like, just empty every bullet I had into this thing. And I, so you can't shoot it, you don't have any guns, so you, your only option is to hide. And uh, you can find different places to hide, you can hide under a bed, you can hide in a cabinet, or you can hide in a sort of locker type thing. Uh, there's plenty of places for you to hide, but if you come out too early, it just if you peek out too early, it can rip you out of those hiding places. And I made the mistake of thinking that I was faster than the zombie fetus baby. <laughs> so it ripped my ass out of the out from underneath the bed and just swallowed me whole while still wailing dad i have seen At some of the point, animations for the swallowing and it's like you guys put way too much effort into this yeah some guy had fun with that he <laughs> he earned his paycheck that day but well he or she i don't want to be i don't want to be uh, gendered but they <laughs> women can their, be horrible monsters too <laughs> yeah, women can make horrible monsters as well uh, hashtag feminine. We obviously, we've all seen donald trump's mother Hey, uh, <laughs> from downtown. I was going to see Elon Musk, but no, she didn't make something horrible. She just looks like a supervillain. <laughs> uh, she looks like if someone drew female Lex Luthor, that's what Elon Musk's mother looks like. I've never, uh, looked, yeah. I've never once been compelled to Google Elon Musk's mother. <laughs> someone showed me a picture of it. It was at a, after a rugby match, and uh, they were just scrolling through Twitter, and he went, "Holy shit, that woman's a supervillain! What the fuck are you talking about?" And they showed me the picture. I'm like, "Who's that?" And that's Elon Musk's mother. And I'm like, that motherfucker has killed a superhero in her time. <laughs> she has, you know, spandex of her arch nemesis burning in a pit somewhere. But yeah, uh, like I said, it is swallowing you whole and just wailing and screeching, shouting dad and yep, fuck you. I, I think at that point I had to pause the game, put the controller down and like, I'm going to go and get a cup of tea, go and take a, a quick walk. Cause hug my dogs. <laughs> fuck dealing with that. Just nasty stuff but it it did something that resident evil hasn't done in a while and that has genuinely freaked me out make me quite scared because with mr x he can be a bit scary but after after but your fourth encounter with him he's just like right fuck off you fedora wearing bastard right i have no ammo to deal with you i'm just gonna run around you and you're gonna you know kick my ass so how about we just get this over with i think that's maybe maybe part of his weakness is that he is basically just a jump scare yeah, he's yeah. kind of intimidating when you see him down the hallway, but it's mostly about him appearing at nowhere and smashing your shit into a wall. Yeah. Whereas I and think horror has to be a bit more than that, and I think when you talk yeah. about like that monster baby, it's just upsetting to see. It's a giant yeah. baby that's coming to eat you. Yeah, and one thing that I think, because uh, they, they always call those things the pursuers in Resident Evil games, and it started off in 3 with uh, Nemesis. Nemesis was the OG Pursuer to the point in Japan he's called Pursuer. Mm. Uh, and then in RE1 Remake, you had Lisa Trevor, who was just this invincible, weird, mutated woman who could 
kill you in a single hit because she was hyper strong and she had these iron shackles and if she hit you with those you were dead instantly uh, it wasn't really one in four because they kind of just focused on all out action but there's always been this idea of the pursuer uh, and then Mr. X was a good pursuer but if he took enough damage he would fall over uh, Lady Dimitrescu is the pursuer for the large part of RE8 when you're in her castle she takes no damage she doesn't stop and she can lock you in places just by standing in front of you this is the only time you're going to get me to come, uh, talk about her figure but she's literally so fucking thick you can't run past her <laughs> She got that. She's got the entire bakery on her arse. The woman's carrying cake so much that you can't run round her. But you can have her spank her with a fly swatter in a certain mod that I've seen. You can. I that mod looked so well done that I thought that was a, a hidden weapon. I thought it was an game. Easter egg as well. Like you could just they just went full kinky with it and just hit <laughs> her with yeah. a fly swatter in the ass. Uh, I mean, to be fair, that does seem like the kind of thing that. Capcom would put in just because we know that you're all horny for Dimitrescu. <laughs> you know how this is going to go. I know how this is going to go. Let's just fucking do this. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be horrible? Like, who talk about like uh, Chris Redfield canonizing stuff? Like, if that just became yeah. part of the cap. Like, it was made by a mod, a, just a random modder, but Capcom was like, uh, I guess we should put it in the Game of the Year edition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just for the meme. I don't, so far, I'd say. Talking about game of the year, so far I'd say 8 is my game of the year, just because uh, my mark of a good Resident Evil game is if I want to replay it immediately after finishing it, and that's what I, exactly what I did with 8. <laughs> I got some infinite ammo weapons, uh, and I took on hardcore mode, and uh, obviously I had an infinite ammo powerful pistol. It made it quite easy, but at the same time, I had so much fun. I knew where to go to pick up shit, uh, I knew how to beat the enemies, and I knew what to do and what to expect. It was just it was such a blast. Well, that second well, time around, after you've completed the storyline, you've had the challenge, you've experienced the game, like yep. sometimes a victory lap like that with a fully powered weapon and like arsenal and stuff like that and just knowing what you need to do is kind of feels like a, a, a treat afterwards. Yeah, and I, that's one of the th one of the many things I love about uh, Resident Evil games is that you get to do those victory laps. In uh, Resident Evil 4, if you finish it, you got an infinite ammo weapon called the Chicago Typewriter. Nice. Which is just a, a Tommy gun, and you it was infinite ammo and it was very high uh, power, so you could just go on popping heads, mm -hmm. and it was very fun to do. Same with uh, I think in every Resident Evil game, uh, three remake, two remake, four, five, six, seven, and eight, you all got infinite ammo weapons, yeah, and you just the victory lap. <laughs> but the yeah the uh, the the Resident Evil like the the fun of like the Infinite Ammo rerun is all is a total blast because I did it with yeah. five five didn't be the one I've played the most and just having a quick run through of that afterwards where it's like this game took you fifteen hours to beat in the first time and then you show up with like a, a triple barrel shotgun and an Infinite yeah. Ammo Desert Eagle and you're like we're doing this in twenty minutes hold my fucking beer <laughs> and just laying waste half of the zombies you're like there we go <laughs> and the problems That's were solved. That's definitely what I did in 8. My my original time was 12 hours because I got everything. I took my time in Dimitrescu's castle. I took my time in the the final level. I just wanted to... I took my time running through the village because I wanted to see everything that this game had to offer. I wanted to absorb it all, get all the uh, files, which is always so much fun to me in Resident Evil games, getting all the little scraps of information that tie this shit together. And Resident Evil 8 has a really big hook back to the original games because you find out that a huge character early in the games 
was in the village and you just holy shit validity <laughs> uh, but uh, I halved my time going to harder difficulty with a higher powered weapon because I knew where everything was and I got all the weapons and treasures in the first run so every subsequent run is just full tilt bozo killing jabronis <laughs> And I, th- I went from 12 and a half hours to six hours flat. Damn. Because I knew where everything was, and I had a high-powered pistol that was just mowing, covered on down. Well, that's interesting, because now I'm, I'm wondering, there'll probably be a couple extra little modes and stuff they'll throw in at the end. There'll be, like, a couple extra difficulties and stuff. Yeah. It's got replay value for one go-round. What about the next time? Are you coming back to this again, just experience the story? Oh, yeah. or? I am going back to it to do Village of Shadows mode. But that will be uh, that will be after I finish New Replicant and after I've played Monster Hunter Rise a bit more, because I want to. There's new monsters added to Rise, and I'm slowly getting a group on Switch to go and do those hunts. <laughs> nice motherfuckers just need to get to my level, not you know step up, son, step up. <laughs> you come and meet my level. Just you know get to the stage of the game where I'm at, then we can go do some hunts. That's just good, man. I. Uh... I look at my game library right now and it's a bit empty. I've started going back to Assassin's Creed's uh, Black mm. Flag. Um, just And just that intro sequence is just fantastic. Might be one yeah. of the best intros to a game I can remember. Because um, I feel like a lot of it... A lot of, and, uh, I mean, the second I get pulled out of the intro to go back to Abstergo, which is the mm. uh, the, the modern day world that's helping you like track all the, the ancestors that you have, I just mm. I fucking hate it. And I, I'm looking at it going... Can I get a mod to just remove those parts? Yeah. To just let me continue with the story. I just want to be a pirate with a knife in his wrist, just stabbing people. That's all I want to do. Yeah, that's all you want from a, a Assassin's Creed game. Don't want to be stuck with a bunch of twenty-something millennials in yeah. a space age office. Fuck off. That's kind of what when they dropped the Desmond storyline. That is where I lost interest. I was like, they had a good story going. Why drop that for nothing? Never got into the Assassin's Creed games past that. It's a hard sell, I'll be honest. Like the quality is there in the initial games. The Ezio trilogy, fantastic. Uh probably some of the best like story uh video game combinations of all time. Just great gameplay and a fun story, fun character. I think they nailed it yeah. with having Ezio as the lead of this weirdly elaborate conspiracy. And then yeah, having it just go increase in gameplay, but then the story just takes a dive. Just wasn't it never quite found that balance again. Except for maybe Black Flag. Oh, uh, one thing I forgot to mention, actually, with uh, stuff mm. we've talked about listening to, I think I've mentioned it about a thousand times on Twitter. Uh, I've enjoyed Tetrarch, a uh, band from Atlanta, Georgia, who have a combination Art. of... The original like article I read about them was like, oh, it's like Linkin Park and Slipknot had a baby. And I'm like, it's way, like, thematically, like, in terms of uh, the, the tone of the band, far closer to Corn. Uh, but there's a little oh. bit of Lincoln Park in there. But it's, it's a fun combo. And uh, Amon Amar celebrated the 20th anniversary of uh, like the album The Crusher by re-releasing or remastering uh, Masters of War. And oh, that, uh, that Amon Amar sound just remastered for modern day. So fucking gorgeous. A good one. Yeah, I, uh, I'd recommend it. If it I mean, go back and listen to the original albums, but that Master of War uh, redo. Oh, my, my gusta. Or whatever the Viking equivalent of Magusta is. No, I believe it is Magusta. <laughs> They're deeply Spanish. The Surprisingly Vikings. Spanish. <laughs> yeah. uh, right, with that, I think we just have our showstopper. I believe I've often been described as surprisingly Spanish. 
<laughs> Viva la <Well> spaghetti. <laughs> Viva la spaguch. Spanish syrup. I, I buy uh, like Malaysian ramen, and for some reason they've changed the packaging, but in the front of it it just says spaghetti. Spaghetti. It's the That meme for sales. Oh, it's worth it though. Uh, especially yeah. at like 30p a pack. Definitely oh, worth fuck it. Um, right, so our show's offer today is a, an adventure into the Arctic, or the Antarctic, by uh, a group who developed a snow cruiser. Now, obviously, I doubt any of those uh, listening have been to the Antarctic, but if you've ever been to the Arctic or Antarctic, because you know it is a frozen hell on Earth. You are thousands of miles from civilization, and you're impossible to reach. You need equipment and people that will survive the most brutal of conditions. With that in mind, a group of uh, Chicago Pullman's company uh, back in the 1930s decided to make their own vehicle that would traverse the Antarctic. Um, this uh, will not go well, spoilers. But they basically reached out to some designers who came up with a strange like, boxy design that kind of looks like a weird Tonka truck. And then they set about building this thing with the help of some supporters uh, as like a giant kind of PR move. The idea being that if they are the company that can make a vehicle that drives in the Antarctic, what can they do for you? And by the way, this uh, Pullman's, pretty sure they make tractors. So, you know, you want to talk about a rugged vehicle, it's a hell of a, a business pitch. But yeah, the idea being, they make the first vehicle to conquer the Antarctic, or to truly conquer the Antarctic, and it's a hell of a PR boost. So they throw a ton of cash at this thing, and uh, end up with a <laughs> a 56-foot-long and 17-foot-wide truck that will go across the Antarctic. And one of its key sponsors is Goodyear, the tyre company, who <laughs> uh, put their typical branding of that giant Goodyear symbol with the, the weird kind of limpian like, stretch across these massive tyres that you can see are like 12 foot in diameter. There's actually a, a, like a footage of a, a guy like attending to maintenance of this thing, and he is dwarfed by the tyres of this vehicle, let alone the vehicle itself. It is a monstrous beast that, uh, as part of a PR campaign, uh, Pullman and uh, Goodyear decided it'd be a good idea to drive it from Chicago to the East Coast, where it'd be picked up and chucked into a boat to sail down south, and then once it hits the Antarctic, roll it off the boat, and then it will just start driving and conquering the Antarctic. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Fucking, Nothing wrong with that, bro. Fucking everything. <laughs> <laughs> it... It drove through uh, Ohio on its way to the coast and fell off a bridge. <laughs> it would also, at max, go at 30 miles an hour. So it would take forever to go anywhere. So you'd, the idea being, we'll drive it through the streets, we'll get uh, all these people all hyped up, and then it would take forever to go past because it's designed to move slowly, but constantly. It's not like it can just burst out of the speed uh, and all of a sudden just overtake a car on the road. Like It's going at 30 miles an hour which made it the biggest like obstacle of traffic in the day because it takes up the whole road. Again, it's 17 feet wide. Yeah. Not exactly suited for... Miles an hour, that's just, they may as well call that thing road rage because that's all it's giving people. <laughs> it was called the Snow Cruiser, by the way, if you're interested in, uh, uh, interested in uh, like getting any information about this. But uh, when I say its max speed is 30 miles an hour, to preserve the engine, because you, know, you need to be sensitive about an engine that will survive the Antarctic... They rolled it through most of uh, Indiana at 20 miles an hour. Can you imagine the fucking rage you would feel behind this thing? <laughs> You'd be, <laughs> I'd be throwing like Molotov cocktails at the side of the car. 
But uh, yeah, basically it, it, it had issues with getting across bridges. Um, at one point it got stuck in a sand dune. Not even sure where they found sand dune in the northeast of America, but somehow they found a sand dune and uh, proceeded to just show off. The idea being the design of the bottom of this uh, was slightly slanted up the way so that if you were to find a snowdrift, you could actually drive the, the car over far enough that it would, like the front end of it would touch the other side and help provide support. But with it being angled, it would naturally kind of basically dig itself out in a certain way. This hit a massive issue when that just didn't fucking work on sand dunes because the uh, the back end of it was so long that it would actually, you'd get the like the front end of the car up part of the, the hill and then the back end would make contact and you'd lift the back tyres off the ground and it wouldn't have enough force to pull itself off the sand dune. This happened on multiple occasions as part of this PR tour. <laughs> These, uh, this did not go as planned. Uh, it then obviously had the issue at the Indiana-Ohio border where it fell off of a bridge, which they didn't anticipate it being large enough. Uh, it was stuck there for about a day before people could come and get it out. Um, so you've got actual photos of this thing stuck in the um, in a lake or in, in a little river that, I mean, it's just, you're looking at it going, this is supposed to be a PR victory and, you know, this is supposed to be the America conquering the unconquerable Antarctic. And it just looks like such a total shit show as far as PR is concerned. Like, at a certain point, you look at firing, like, your PR people. And then at a certain point, you start just firing project managers. I'd have been at this point by now. Turns out, uh, it was only going to get worse from there. So it sailed out of the uh, the Boston port and then it went south um, into the Bay of Wales. Uh, it took three months to get there. And then the designer... Uh, Thomas Poulter said that he would like to take the honour of driving it onto the Antarctic. After all, it's his baby. He designed it. He helped construct mm-hmm. it and uh, he was on to get the project running. And then as the um, as the project is set up and you know everybody's ready to get this boat uh, or get this massive land cruiser, snow cruiser, off of the boat, it fell off the bridge connecting it to the land. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it almost fell off into the water but um, because of it being 35 tons, it basically just snapped one of the logs they were using as a bridge between the between the land and the, the ship itself. Uh, however, they luckily managed to keep it balanced and drove it back onto the snow, so it actually did make it to the Antarctic. And then they discovered the new problem. Those Goodyear tyres that they were so proud of are uh, basically um, smooth. The idea being that it is so heavy that the weight of the vehicle itself pushing down on the tr- on the wheels will give it enough surface area to provide traction to drive in the snow. So it shouldn't need um, actual like grip itself. It will have enough force to provide its own grip. Worst mm. case scenario, you can always put on some tire chains <laughs> if you have enough uh, like actual chain to go all the way around the tires. They found enough to put uh, the snow like snow chains on the rear wheels. It didn't work. The engine fired as fast as it possibly could, but the tires just kept spinning because they're smooth and you're driving in snow. However, they found out it would work in reverse. For some reason, the car or the vehicle had enough like traction and push to move in reverse and could actually drive in the snow. Once they figured this out, they realised that they would have to drive the entire vehicle all the way across the Antarctic in reverse. 
So they tested it out for two weeks and just you know, started playing around with it. Uh, and unfortunately, they had to basically abandon the vehicle in the middle of the Antarctic when it just failed. They realised they couldn't drop it, drive it all the way back home. They got about 100 kilometres out from base and realised they couldn't get it home. Which is odd because it was designed specifically for the purpose of you can take it anywhere and take it home again. But yeah, it was eventually just abandoned in the 1940s and it was deemed an unnecessary uh, expenditure by the United States because, you know, there was other things going on in the world in the 1940s. Yeah, they had, they had other shit to worry about. They had, they had a few small things to attend to. And yeah, because of the sheer amount big. of effort and engineering it was taking to keep this project going, uh, it was left basically in the Antarctic in the 1940s. And then when they returned to find it, in hopes of like restarting the project in the peacetime, it was gone. It was believed to be covered in snowbanks and un- undetectable. They never actually found it. Uh, two seconds. Your TV's on. Yeah, motherfucker, I just realised. <laughs> it's not flashing up with my audio, it's with whatever Gordon's playing. Alright. Hold on. I think we'll just have to grin and bear it. Yeah, but uh, the the vehicle was eventually just kind of abandoned and was found again actually for a little bit in the 1945 uh, or 1946 expedition to the Antarctic. And at some point in the 1950s, they actually managed to find it. And they found it sitting on an Antarctic shelf and they found it had been ransacked and raided and all that stuff had been taken out. So there was basically no use for it. Nobody ever actually got to use the vehicle as intended. So it was kind of abandoned again. And then in 1962, they realised that the machine itself, like the, the ice shelf that it was sitting on, had mm. uh, drifted off and fallen into the ocean. And the uh, the vehicle was gone. Never to be found again. It is sitting somewhere at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, it's not totally useless now. It's now probably got a school of fishing. Yeah, it's now, it's now probably home to... <laughs> it's probably now home to some horrific sea monster. Um, but yeah, this Some several thousand dollar fish tank now. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, at one point the project was estimated to cost uh, three hundred thousand in like that times money, which at this point is now a couple million, which actually for the price is not that bad for what they were attempting to do. Um, yeah. Until you realise the uh, the Russians did the same thing with a literal fucking tractor. <laughs> I know. <laughs> if you look at the uh, Soviet attempts to conquer the Antarctic. They're way more frugal, and it is literally just a tractor. The best part is, they won. There are working Soviet-era tractors that still actually work in the South Pole today, and you can find them there at certain bases. They're hard to find, and there's only a few in operation, but considering that you know they put four on the continent, and now it's been like kind of Frankenstein down to two, and they both still run about 50 years later, it's super fucking impressive. And especially when you hear the Americans complete shit show of an attempt. So yeah, that is the, the Snow Cruiser. Uh, I think at one point it was actually dubbed the Little America 3 as like a PR campaign. <laughs> but yeah, and that's the story of how America didn't con- uh, conquer the Antarctic. Mm. Yeah. That, was, that was piss off a lot of Americans. Russia did it better. <laughs> Russia did it so much better. Like, no, like, yeah, you get to the moon, but mm, <laughs> you got to take a solid fucking L for this one. Um, How shit must the engineers that made that thing feel knowing that it's just at the bottom of the Antarctic? <laughs> it's somewhere. It, like, the fact that it was left, abandoned twice, 
and eventually it got so abandoned it fell off the face of the earth. What a complete dismissal of your like your but what must have been like your life's goal? Like imagine being the guy who says, Hey, you know how we conquered the Antarctic? My fucking drawing made life. I, yeah. I guarantee that gets free beers in Detroit every time. But yeah, probably not to be. Imagine that guy just every time he sees a drawing of some kind of snow vehicle, just bursting into tears like, <laughs> "God, my snow cruiser!" I like the idea of him running around in a jet ski, being like, or not a jet ski, a snowmobile, and just be like, "I should have just made it in with fucking tracks." <laughs> <laughs> he just sets fire to it. <laughs> I ain't dealing with this shit. I'm not joking. That's the Russian version. It's literally just one of their old trucks, but with tracks <laughs> instead of wheels. And this is why they chose tracks. Because these fucking idiots chose smooth tires. Yeah, smooth tires and ice. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I'll actually send you the article that uh, got me checking this out. Just again, and some of the pictures that are very cool. I uh, quite enjoy that old like nineteen fifties era black and white photography, um, especially because you know it's the best they can do. Like they're just trying to explain how like. And there's some, like, coloured photos in there as well. I love the picture that you sent me on the article. It's just one guy trying to put chains on. Like, that's <laughs> going to fucking help at this point. Yeah. They, they need to put on a second... Like, that second... There's a, an image that I've sent Dom that's like, just part of the thumbnail for the article. And it is literally just two... Um, they've doubled up the tyres at the front to give it a bit more surface area um, in the hopes that that would help traction, but also put snow chains on it. That was part of their design when they realised the original design just wouldn't work. So yeah, uh, that is our showstopper for today, and I think that wraps up today's show as well. With that in mind, I like I the, like... the snow cruiser actually looks like the the landing vehicle from Aliens. Hmm, I didn't see that until now, but yeah, yeah, kind of looks like it. Hmm, maybe James Cameron dug it up and put it in his movie. <laughs> Wouldn't that be? He does love deep sea diving. He does. Yep. He's been the bottom of the Mariana Ranch. Maybe like grabbing this weird relic of the past might not have been so hard for him. Yeah, he's got the money. Uh, with that in mind, if you'd like to reach out to the podcast, you can reach out to us on Twitter at gibberpish, or you can email the podcast at gibberpishpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. Uh, I've been Should called, it be a government organisation? Working on it. That paperwork is surprisingly yep. tricky, and Boris Johnson is helping no one. Yep. Bastards getting married and shit. Moving on. Read our crayon-covered applications, you dick. <laughs> you have the time, clearly. <laughs> time to get married. Uh, You've been lazy now. But I've been calling Graham. I've been Dom Anderson. And we've been talking gibberish. And I, not I feel like I've been married. shades of Dom Anderson, not fully Dom Anderson. <laughs> shades of Dom Anderson. Fifty Shades of Dom. Actually, that's no. Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> yeah, that's Fifty Shades of Grey. Eventually, we have to do that. At least I have hair. <laughs>